This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry South and Becca Hurley. The gang's gathered. We're all here. Um, And here's the deal. Holy cow. President Trump is talking tough with Russia. Tougher than he's ever been against Russia. Talking? We're bringing on. We're bringing. He's tweeting tough. He's tweeting tough. He is a a tough Tough tweeter. Anyway, uh, so Syria, something's going to happen. The bombs, I think, basically alluded to the fact that. Russia was going to shoot down the bombs, so you better get ready, Russia, because we're sending some some work for you to take care of. This is crazy. Eh. Syria. We'll see. Uh, uh, by the way, a new headline out, too. Uh, Ryan, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, will not seek re-election. Unbelievable as well. He may not have a house to lead, so. Well, and it's so weird. Whoever is in that position that just says, I'm done at his age. Someone who may be thinking they're going to lose the house. Yeah, and also somebody who's— And he's just—he didn't want it to begin with. Yeah, he they remember, to, yeah. They had to talk him into it. hes He wants a life. They had the, what the Freedom Party was over there, and they're just going to—is it the Freedom Party? Is that what they call it? Sounds no. right. Freedom Caucus? Freedom Caucus. The group of people who make his job extremely tough and make him the villain every time he does something. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just trying to, you know— Unite all the different factions in the House so that the GOP, who has the control of the House, can actually pass a bill, and it's really difficult. Think of this, though. He will, he's basically saying, I will not run this fall. Yeah. That is this fall, this next election cycle. He's not running. That's a big deal. Hmm. The Speaker of the House not running. Unbelievable. What's going on? Uh, President Trump's attorney, Cohen, is being now investigated by the FBI. All of this stuff's happening. So uh, let's get to the headlines. What could be more fun than that? Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? So the uh, the news of Trump tweeting about Russia and missiles and yeah, Paul Ryan. Other news, early December, President Trump furious over news reports about a new round of subpoenas from the office of special counsel Robert Mueller told advisors no uncertain terms that Mr. Mueller's investigation had to be shut down. Trump, uh, the subpoena suggested that Mr. Mueller had expanded the investigation in a way that crossed the red line that Trump had said earlier that year in an interview with the New York Times, which was if Mueller had straight into his businesses. Yeah. If the investigation went into the Trump empire, he goes, that's out of line. That's the red line. We're going to try to shut you down yeah. at that point. Well, unless, of course, that red line led to Russia. Bah. And Russian relations. The uh, So what, what ended up happening was it was the White House or Trump, whichever, was confused as to what the actual report was. Mm. And the report was actually wrong, I believe, is the the end result of it all. And so everyone, like, walked it back and, you know, DEFCON, whatever, was oh, done. Wow. We're not going to go to this, you know, uh, extreme position of firing Mueller. The interesting part in this New York Times article, the end of it, the end of the article, the last line, it reads, The president's diatribes about Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Mr. Rosenstein and the existence of the special counsel have, for the most part, uh, amongst White House aides, become a dependable part of the fabric of life working for this president. Yeah. 
a dependable part of the fabric of mm-hmm. working for the president is him complaining about this issue. Well, and one of the things that everybody wanted about the president or loved about the president initially is that he's a businessman. He knows mm-hmm. how to run a team. He knows how to make a team. But he sure has a lot of people on his team that he chose that he doesn't like. Right. And which, then he talks about them a lot until they quit. Which would lead me to maybe believe that other people on his staff actually chose those people and said, yeah. hey, here's the guy. And he goes, whatever. He doesn't really pay attention to that. those types of details. Well, but he's the president. Well, so yeah. Of course he... He hires he, good people. He served, Remember he said he's going to hire well, yeah. good people and to manage? Been, and 45 of them have left. Right. Well, or been ordered out. That's what happens. Or been under investigation or been yeah, subpoenaed. In, in response to the raid of his personal lawyer's home and office and hotel room on Monday, President Trump is considering firing Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, several people with knowledge of the discussions told CNN, after he heard about the FBI targeting Michael Cohen, uh, they executed the U.S. Attorney's, uh, the, the raid executed by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Trump declared that it was a ruse, and special counsel Robert Mueller was actually behind it, one person tells CNN. Trump has complained that top officials at the Department of Justice are not doing enough to support him during Mueller's investigation into the Russian meddling of the 2016 election. Uh, Two officials said the raid might be a tipping point that pushes him to act, and if he's going to actually fire anyone, it would be Rosenstein. He is the deputy to Jeff Sessions. So he would have Rosenstein fire Mueller, except many would think that Rosenstein would not do that and instead would quit before firing Mueller, which would look really bad. Now, what they're saying is they that they uh, a top uh, Republican in Congress has told them not to do this. Do not fire Rosenstein. But the president and senior administration officials believe that uh, legal advisors, uh, they all have this idea that they can do this because Rosenstein is a potential witness in the Mueller investigation having written the memo to justify Trump's firing of the former FBI director, James Comey. Therefore, right. he has a conflict of interest. Yeah. So he did what Trump asked him to do. Now that that's a liability and he right. should be fired. <sighs> and then many are wondering, is this how you act if you're so innocent? Just let the right. investigation happen. No. But then his point is, yeah, I would if it didn't keep growing bigger and bigger into all of these other things that have nothing to do with Russia. Unless they do. Yeah. Now, to the real story yesterday, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, yeah. He took center stage Tuesday testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Judiciary and Commerce Committee. There were two committees, two. joint yeah. session, 44 members of the Senate. Almost wow. half the Senate sitting in front of this guy. It's like Michael Jordan arrived and they all wanted to be near him. There was some of that. Or I guess LeBron is the one that's hot. There was some, there was a little hero worship that happened as they were talking to this 33 year old who kept mentioning his dorm room. Um, (laughs) I heard someone say that's probably not the best thing you want to do when you're sitting in front of uh, experienced uh, legal legislators up there and you're, they're trying to, you're trying to convince them you know what you're doing and running this massive company. And talk about your dorm room. And you keep pointing at your dorm room. But the president does that too, right? He points out his college experience. So uh, I don't know, whichever. Wharton Business School. So this is all data privacy and all those concerns. Most senators asked challenging questions in an often tense hearing probing Zuckerberg as to whether Facebook would be open to more federal regulation or pointing out how Zuckerberg himself values his personal privacy in a way that uh, his social network may not. One senator asked him, uh, can you tell us what hotel you slept in last night? He's like, uh, no. 
And so kind of pointing out that your personal privacy is important to you. Interesting. But all of ours isn't. And then some ask really dumb questions. It says, but not every question constituted a good grilling. Some questions amounted to a little more than senators asking for an explanation of Facebook's basic functions and policies, prompting Zuckerberg to spend a healthy amount of time explaining the Internet. Is, is Facebook on the interweb? Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, for example, asked Zuckerberg how Facebook could survive as a business without charging users a fee. Uh, and Zuckerberg responds, Senator, we run ads. I know, but that's... We okay. run advertisements. But he's being a little flippant there because <laughs> Facebook makes more money mining data and having paying people paying them for access to the mining of their data. The way they get the data is purchasing ads. Then they get access to Right, but, this. Then, but then companies, advertisers like me... Yeah. I'm paying. I'm not just paying to post an ad. I'm paying right. for the data mining that but they're don't doing. You, don't you get access to a a uh, interface where you can choose how to target that uh-huh. ad, and that's but, how you access right. the I know, data? So right? what we're saying is this is all about ads. Yeah. But really, behind what makes the ad work is the data mining that is ten times bigger than the ad right. placement. I think the problem is people think that you, if you sign up to to advertise on Facebook, they send you a massive data file. Right. Yeah. No. No. You go to a pla- you yeah, go to a, a, a web page and place it. But that's where the, that's where they make all of their money so is he, in their data. Right. But he's trying to explain how this right. works, and the senators are like, "So the internet? Do you use a mouse, or <laughs> how does this work?" They, they uh, one New York Times reporter I heard this morning said this amounted to a five hour like uh, tech, yeah, uh, tech support call. <laughs> like you're calling to get your internet fixed, and they're trying yeah. to explain to the old guy how to use the iPhone. And sure. It just, sure. It just some of the questions that way. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Bill Nelson of Florida, meanwhile, presented a hypothetical situation in which he enjoys chocolate, but doesn't want to see ads for chocolate on Facebook. If he talks about his love for chocolate, is there any way for him to avoid about the d- ads about the delicious chocolate? Zuckerberg responded that targeted ad- targeted ads are simply a part of Facebook's basic user agreement and are a common and commonplace in general on the internet. Uh, the the end of the chocolate discussion said, well, you can choose what information you share and with yeah. whom. Right, sure. And it's all in there. And then they ask, can I delete myself from Facebook? Why don't you have that as an option? He goes, it's in the settings. You just hit delete and you're mm-hmm. off. So, and then somebody said, your, your, user, your user agreement is garbage. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Zuckerberg, he'll appear before the House Energy and Commerce Committee today. Hmm. Many people think it'll be a better hearing because the members of the House would have watched the one yesterday and go, eh, let's not ask them how the Internet works. Well, and they, yeah, they had the tutorial. Now, right. they, now they can move on. Finally, a federal judge in Chicago has tossed a class action lawsuit that argued that McDonald's was duping customers because of a single extra value meal cost more than the sum of the total individual components of said extra value meal. Yeah, but that's, that's the extra in the extra So value. the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin reported Monday that Kelly uh, Killen uh, said that she bought a sausage burrito breakfast extra value meal in Chicago for $5.08. But she said the value label was deceptive because buying the same two sausage burritos, hash browns, and, co- and coffee individually would have cost $4.97. But would she have had that special box that they come in? So the judge noted that prices for the combo meals and individual items are easily visible wow. from the counter. She said that just because some consumers don't want to bother to compare prices doesn't mean that they can't. They've claimed they've been fooled. It's right yeah. in front of you. It's right there. So just, just look at it. You, I have to add the value is you walk up and say, oh, "Yeah, I'd like number one." Like, <laughs> I know we're getting so lazy, we can only give a number. Well, all right. So we're learning a lot today.
This is uh, this is life. Life is good. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about happiness again. Uh, we, we've we've brought it up a lot on the show. Um, today, we're going to be uh, talking to a professor who has done a complete historical review of where the cultural movement on happiness came from, why it's here, and how long it will last. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in general, we're all trying to be happier, aren't we? We want to be happy. We want our families and friends to be happy. Uh, but are we happier as a society compared to 20 years ago? Today to talk to us about it is, uh, and his new book is Daniel Horowitz, who's the author of the book Happier, the, the History of a Cultural Movement that Aspired to Transform America. Uh, Dr. Horowitz, thank you so much for being with us here today. Glad to join you. What a, what a great, uh, boy, job you've done on doing a, a, an incredible, I think, um, an insightful look at this history of this happiness movement. It seems like we are talking more and more about happiness and being happy. We have so many titles coming out on the topic of happiness. Most of it, it seems, driven by the uh, the um, positive psychology movement. What led you to, to kind of do this historical view of this movement? Well, there are three origin stories to this. Uh, first of all, as you say, it's hard as a citizen uh, not to be aware that interest in happiness is all ar- around us. We see it on television, uh, on the Internet. Uh, I see it when I go on the subway mm. with signs up. I see it in restrooms, all sorts of places. The second is I had written three books before about how uh, American writers had wrestled with the relationship between emotions and wealth. Uh, and the most immediate uh, origins of my study uh, uh, was a course I audited at Harvard called The Science of Happiness. Yeah. Sean, uh, is that Sean Acor? Is that where his... Uh, that was the big lecture course. Okay, uh, yeah. 15, 20 years ago. Um, taught by Tal Ben-Shahar, and hmm. Sean was a student in it, I think. This was a seminar taught by a woman named uh, Dr. Nancy Edkoff. So I, I audited it. There were 24 regular students. I created a timeline and at the end of the course, Dr. Edkoff asked me to give a paper, and that was where it all began. Oh, wow. Well, what a, what an intriguing history. I'm just somebody who's, you know, noticed it as well, read a lot about the movement. And what do you, I mean, I guess overall, I, I think the history, the historical side that you bring is incredible. Maybe talk to us about why we as a culture, why we as a society at this time are so fixated on, on happiness. Well, there are two explanations, or a number of explanations for it. Uh, people within positive psychology, uh, Martin Seligman and others, uh, argue that this has happened, and by this I mean positive psychology, which, as you know, is a, a complex mixture of Eastern religions, neuroscience, behavioral economics, but especially a change among psychologists, among some psychologists, a change in emphasis from mental illness, depression, anxiety, to mental health, uh, flourishing, grit, resilience. 
um, uh, their explanation or the explanation of many people in the field is that we're in an extraordinary moment relying on the work of Steven Pinker, the new book, Enlightenment Now, hundreds of millions of people uh, brought into the middle class around the world, billions of people brought out of poverty, uh, violence way down, etc. So their argument is we're at this extraordinary moment when uh, happiness spreads because the conditions for it, because there's a lot mm. to be happy about around the world. In the book, I offer a, a very different explanation that has to do with the erosion of the social safety network starting in the 1980s uh, and the way in which a market economy uh, throws people or encourages people uh, to uh, rely on their own resources uh, in order to be happy. But I've also got to say, as you well realize, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, this is a long history that goes back at least to the Declaration of Independence and Mm. the statement of the importance of the pursuit of happiness up to um, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, 1952, The Power of Positive Thinking. So the interest in happiness uh, uh, in America has a long, long history, but I think it's really in the last 30 years that this has become uh, such a prominent concern. Is talk about? Um, I mean, there has been some negative pushback on positive psychology. It's and it's. I mean, like some of it's. It's very pop cultural. It's. It's kind of the hip thing to be. Oprah's even in on it. Is it? it in your eyes, as a as a historian, does it? Is, is it holding the water that it needs to hold as a as a truly effective theory? I think, in fact, it's transformed the lives of tens of millions of people. Uh, But let me step back for a minute. Yes, there's a lot of criticism of it for being too popular, for uh, positive psychologists moving too quickly from scholarly journals to how-to books, uh, for for overemphasizing happiness. And indeed, among happiness or positive psychology uh, scholars, there was something, there is something called a positive psychology 2.0. That is to redress the balance of an, uh, what some see as an excess uh, emphasis. Uh, but having said that, I also have to say it has indeed transformed the lives of tens of millions of people. Uh, a number of interventions in corporations, in the military, in the school system, uh, positive psychology coaching, uh, the importance of neuroscience, the importance of meditation, all of that has, I'm not sure I'd say made people happier, but really transformed their lives for the better. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And and I guess, too, it's it, it, there's something weird about academia and pop culture kind of, you know, being at odds with each other many times and together many times. How, how do you see, um, as far as the whole concept of happiness, because you did bring into some of the discussion earlier about just the fact that, I mean, of equality of opportunity and, and um, I mean, it's one thing to go tell everybody that they have the power within them to make something happen, but not if there isn't some, you know, equality in opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the field itself affects uh, different people differentially. Uh, it is uh, many people in the field are not particularly concerned about um, uh, inequality or an insecurity so prevalent in our society. 
insofar as they see this, uh, see their interventions as operating on a very individualistic uh, uh, level. But, uh, you know, as we're all aware, there's a lot of uh, unhappiness uh, in the world, and positive psychologists uh, tend to address that more by interventions into people's individual lives than by social policy, by um, uh, strengthening the social safety network, for example. Mm. Well, and it's interesting, too, is is this, uh, which came first, Daniel, the the fall of people believing in institutions like government, religion, you know, universities? Did the fall precede then the need for the theory, or did the theory precede the fall? Well, I think the theory, as I said before, and as you're well aware, has been around a very long time. Yeah. But it um, it got revived and amplified uh, by conditions that you just mentioned. Yes, I think uh, starting in the 1970s, the erosion of Americans' faith uh, in their institutions uh, and the erosion of some of those institutions themselves uh, paved the way for this. But the ideas were there. They've yeah. been there going back to Aristotle and, and uh, William James and Darwin. Uh, and certainly Norman Vincent Peale, they've been there, and they, you know, history, I don't want to quite say doesn't repeat itself, but ideas are waiting to be revived and amplified, and I think that's what changing social conditions did. Does, um, how do you see, uh, is there a downside to the movement? Is there a downside to the happiness and, and even positive psychology Approach. I mean, I'm a big believer in it, and and have seen the benefits in my own life and others. But um, do, do we create uh, uh, do we create generations that that see everything as much more independent than collective? I don't know. Well, you know, I, yes. I mean, I, the, it's a complicated answer. Yeah. You foretold foretold the two sides. No question. Again, that it's a positive psychology. It certainly reinforced things I had long uh, come to understand in my own life. Uh, but is there a downside? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that for some people, the excessive happiness, the smiley face, uh, yeah. that uh, you can make your own day, this is for you to do, uh, that that individualism, as, as I, I don't want to quite use collectivism, but because of its, some of its historical connotations, but we are in a commonwealth. Uh, to use a, a better word, uh, we, where we are, I hope, responsible for the well-being of others uh, in our society. And to some extent, not totally, some positive psychologists uh, don't want to talk about that. They want to see this as uh, a very individualistic effort. Hmm. What uh, Again, we're speaking with Daniel Horowitz, who is the author of the book Happier, the History of a Cultural Movement that Aspired to Transform America. Dr. Daniel Horowitz is the Mary Huggins Gamble Foundation Chair and Professor of American Studies Emeritus at Smith College. Um, do you – are we happier? I mean, with this – with the power of all of this going on behind the scenes and the push for happiness – Overall, as a as a historian, do you see that we are happier? I don't really know the longitudinal data, and I don't think we have enough of it for the, for me to give you a, a firm conclusion. Uh, you know, there uh, there is a lot of evidence that Americans have become uh, more optimistic, but there's counter evidence as well. 
uh, the tremendous reliance on uh, uh, psycho uh, on opioids, for instance, uh, the rising suicide and depression rates. Uh, those kinds of things certainly indicate that not everyone is uh, happier. And for me, the election of 2016 revealed that there was a lot of unhappiness in, in mm. this country, um, a lot of anger, a lot of sense that something had gone wrong with America. Uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I certainly can't provide convincing uh, evidence of longitudinal change. Yeah. What do you um, what do you you know see as uh, the future of this movement? I guess knowing the past may help us to understand the future of where this goes. Where do you see the research moving to, and uh, how long does this wave last? Do you foresee any future wave coming that would be a response to the positive psychology movement? Well, historians are better talking about the past than predicting <laughs> the future. Yeah. As you and your readers, your listeners can surely uh, understand. Uh, you know, mo- movements like this have a history. They, uh, they amplify, they grow, they change, and sometimes they burn out. I don't think we're anywhere near right now a turning point. I think the direction is uh, in, ampl- in terms of amplification and growth getting stronger, having uh, greater and greater impact in the society. So I I can't really predict the future. It's certainly been an extraordinary run that I would date starting sometimes in the 1990s. That is, we're we're well 25 years into this growth Mm. of this as a movement. And and two, you you did mention like – I mean, corporations are changing because of this. Individual, you know, we're, we're becoming much more specialized in our workplaces, in our knowledge. And, I mean, it almost seems like it, if it, 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 the positive psychology movement might be strong enough to start changing some seriously large systems that, that might, we might ride for a long time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, many, many corporations, Zappos in Las Vegas, the strongest, most prominent example, have chief happiness officers or vice president in charge of well-being and do all sorts of things to promote a sense of well-being among their employees. The uh, comprehensive program called Comprehensive uh, Family and Soldier Fitness uh, that has uh, worked to improve the lives of of, uh, uh, tens of thousands of people in the American uh, military uh, there are school systems, sometimes individual schools, sometimes school systems as a whole. So there are a lot of institutional, as you're suggesting, institutional or ways in which uh, positive psychology has been, been applied in institutions. And certainly uh, the uh, funding by both private and public sources, that is by uh, foundations as well as government agencies, of research into how to use happiness, for instance, in medical uh, situations, how to use uh, positive psychology to promote a sense of well-being. Hmm. All of that has tremendous power. How have how has your life, Daniel, been impacted as you've you know studied on this as a you know as a historian? That's a great question. I, you know, I've just had my 80th birthday. Oh wow! Congratulations. I, I'm not sure. I'm at age 80, I'm someone, or even <laughs> 75, 
someone who changed whose life changed dramatically. I, I would say this: um, studying this, which I did for four or five years, didn't change me so much as it confirmed in in me things I already understood from my life and from uh, earlier work. Give you a few few examples. Yeah. I've long, long understood that when you have some more money. Uh, once you've satisfied certain basic needs, that spending that money on experiences as opposed to goods, that is going out to a dinner with friends and family as opposed to buying a little better car, that experiences rather than goods are much more powerful in uh, enhancing your self sense of well-being. I understood that, hmm. uh, and that's a central proposition in uh, uh, in uh, in positive psychology, or a second example, um, there's something called Helper's High, uh, discovered a long time ago. We all know that if we give money or assistance to someone else, that it helps them. But what the Helper's High underscores is that we get great pleasure from helping. I've understood that as a teacher as a mentor to students and younger faculty members, I've long understood the pleasure I got from helping others. Uh, gratitude, uh, altruism are very powerful uh, issues in positive psychology, and I've understood that in my own life. That's powerful. Well, yeah, and to yeah, there's already data that we're picking up anyway about what works, and now to have it, I guess, substantiated by. Positive psychology is powerful. Research, yes. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, what positive psychology does is take what many people understand. Social relate friendship is important. Yeah. That's a basic proposition. That, that's not a brand new idea, but what positive psychologists did was test it uh, both uh, physiologically and, re- and in terms of attitudes and showed that friendships really do make people happier. Mm. Uh, But the idea itself is as old as uh, ancient history. Um, And I certainly understood that in my own life, that friendships are absolutely central to my life. And then I read all these studies that say, oh, (laughs) social relationships are powerful. Absolutely. They matter. Well, Dr. Daniel Horowitz, we appreciate you and your time. And congratulations on celebrating your 80th birthday as well. And, uh, Great work on your book, Happier, The History of Cultural Movement That Aspired to Transform America. We're all going to benefit because of it. We appreciate that. Boy, isn't it powerful to know, too, that, uh, you know, the things your gut tells you, the things that your heart already knows to be true is now being validated as well by research. How, How powerful is that? And some being invalidated. You know, money, a lot of money doesn't make you a lot happier, but uh, enough money can. We'll talk uh, more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a happier life. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, folks. You know, um, as we talk about uh, positive psychology... And uh, that happiness movement that Daniel was talking about, it really is 
uh, to me, I I love it as a as a process, as an approach to life. It makes sense how we get there. We do need to pay attention and make sure that uh, we're not just telling people that they they just got to hunker down and suck it up and and be happy. Um, because again, there are certain cultures and certain parts of our country, certain parts of our um, of our world that they still don't have the same opportunities, right, as others. And so um, to be positive when your sister was just abducted into a sex trade, uh, you know, underground, you know, problem, it's not enough to just say, just be happy. But that's not usually what the happiness uh, kind of movement is about. It's more about the fact that you can wait forever to be successful and it won't make you happy. A lot of us think success breeds happiness. Grades makes you ha- make you happier. Uh, being a successful business operator makes you happy. And so we think perfection and getting a lot of things accomplished and done makes us happy. And we've trained that into our children. We've trained it into our brains, our minds that accomplishment is happiness uh, and um, uh, you know, control is happiness. And in reality, what you'll find out in all of the research on happiness is it's, it's not quite that way. Usually what the key is is happy people that find the method to find happiness in their existing life, those people tend to be successful. It's not that success breeds the happy. It's that happy people breed success. And that's some of the latest research on the subject. Um, so a couple of rules. I call them the ABCs of happiness, and they're very basic ideas. But the A of happiness is to appreciate today. We need to appreciate what is happening with us right now. Appreciate your life right now. Happier, happier people appreciate what's going on in their life. They actually appreciate what they're good at, and they're very, they're very tuned in to what they do well. They appreciate their strengths. They understand what their expertise is and what they know how to do. And they know their character strengths. They know their values and their beliefs. They also appreciate others, and they see what others are doing. Happy people um, appreciate the fact that others are part of their life, part of their team, and they can see the good in what's happening. And happier people appreciate the positive, not just that everything is positive, but they see the good that is happening daily. And um, the ability to see the good every day tends to change you, right? We can leverage good things. If, if we have more of a negative mindset, then all we tend to do is pick up all the negative. And um, a, a lot of pessimists would say, well, yeah, well, that's the best way to be, right? Then you're not going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, but not being taken advantage of does not make you happy. It also does not make you a great business person to play every interaction as, as a way that, to make sure you're not going to get harmed. At some point, you have to actually go reaching for the other things, the other benefits. So uh, the A's are to appreciate what is. Um, the B's of life uh, are really about believing in tomorrow. Happier people have a strong belief about what their future looks like. And they, they want to be a part of their future, and they want – and they know what their future should look like. They have a strong belief, a strong hope in what they can accomplish and do um, tomorrow. And uh, 
that means they have a strong connection to their purpose in life. They they have a mission. They understand what life is. They're trying to to actually um, to to be able to be in their lives in, in a more active way and to fulfill their mission and their purpose and their passion and they're connected to it. And really, that to me is one of the the greatest I think benefits of this whole uh, happiness movement is to know that you have a life that's pretty powerful. And if you can believe in it, uh, in tomorrow being a good thing, it's awesome. In fact, they actually define happiness as an experience of positive emotion. It's pleasure combined with a deeper feeling of meaning and purpose. So ask yourself, do you have more meaning in your life? Do you have more purpose in your life? Because if so, you're probably going to be happier. And the C's of happiness are simply to connect deeply with others. Happy people connect more deeply with other people, which a couple things that means is they are intentionally not just zoning out. They don't just numb themselves with media, with technology, with Netflix. So they turn off their numbing and uh, they don't just try to medicate themselves away. They don't drink themselves into oblivion. They don't uh, they don't they don't just phase out every night and turn off every night. And they also connect deeply with other people, which is hard for many because they they don't want to be vulnerable. And so we, these are the things we've got to work on, appreciating what is, believing in what will be, and connecting along the way. ABCs of happiness. Anyway, just my little idea, my little coach's corner. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. We're going to be talking about no more perfect kids, how to reframe uh, our parenting models straight ahead. If you're like most parents, you began dreaming about your child's life from the moment you found out that you were going to be a parent, and maybe even before that, uh, perhaps you imagined your child reading by age three, starring in her high school basketball team, or even being, you know, a concert pianist at Carnegie Hall by the age of eight. But uh, what happens when they don't quite add up to all of your dreams? Jill Savage is co-author of No More Perfect Kids, and she joined us a while ago to talk about how our perfect expectations as parents can have negative effects on our children. We began the interview uh, with me talking about how I I talk often about how we push to perfection on our kids and we expect too much. We do, and we really, you know, often don't realize it. Maybe it even happened in us. Yeah. You know, maybe when we were kids, uh, we brought home a report card and it had three A's and two B's on it. And... (laughs) And uh, instead of getting a pat on the back for those A's, we got, so how come these B's aren't A's? Right. And in that moment, without realizing it, we became infected with the perfection infection. We learned that uh, good isn't good enough. And so then, uh, of course, you know, you can look at that and say, you know, we're trying to inspire our kids. Yes, but there are ways to do that. Uh, without putting some unrealistic expectations oh, on them. It's so true. And then when you think about it down the road, other issues, uh, bulimia, anorexia, that could be attributed to this need to be perfect, the stress of it all. Eventually, I, there's cheating. There's so many things that can go on just in order to be the best. 
Yeah, there really is. And sometimes our kids kind of come pre-wired Yeah, that. you bet. You know, based upon their temperament, based upon their personality, um, they, they already are pre-wired to do that. And sometimes it, uh, we can instill that in them. Uh, so I think we have to understand both angles of that. You know, I think that um, uh, I, I know when when I was uh, growing up, my um, you know I was kind of pre-wired for perfectionism, yeah. and uh, it's part of my Type A driven personality. Um, but what also happens is, um, you know, uh, my parents probably. Uh, further drove that into me because they very much affirmed um, results, those results. And um, and I think when you've got a kid that's kind of wired like that, you've got to re- affirm effort. And um, that helps to keep that from going down that perfection yeah. road. Well, and because and the results sometimes are, are easier and, and more beneficial, except eventually in a marriage Sometimes we can't. There's certain things you can't measure anymore. Or in life, there's certain things that matter that are really hard to measure, like being nice. It's a hard <laughs> thing to measure niceness. Yet we can measure your grades, but you can get your grades at the expense of being nice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's and integrity. What I, yeah. You know, integrity is another one. That's when you when you get the whole cheating thing in there because you've just got to get the grade. Um, what a difference that that. Um, you know, if you're doing that to the uh, neglect of character, uh, boy, that's when there should be some red flags. That you bet. On. Talk about um, you. You call it the perfection infection, and so whether we're kind of born with the disposition of it. I mean, sometimes just people that are of faith, they you know, there's a, they may have a scripture be therefore perfect. So, oh, geez, now I got to be perfect. I mean, it, it could even be pushed as a as a religious ideal. Um, how does this perfection infection spread? Well, you know what? It starts, we have to really look at how it starts in us first yeah. and uh, as parents. We, and part of it comes from our culture. We are surrounded by images of perfection. Uh, all you have to do is walk through the checkout line of the grocery That's store. That's right. And you look at the covers of the magazines and you see images of perfect living rooms and perfect bodies and perfect families. And you see headlines. You know, as a mother, I would see a headline that would say, body after baby, three months. You know, <laughs> picture, you know have a picture of this beautiful, yeah. uh, you know, celebrity who doesn't look like she had a baby three months ago. And I look down at mine and go, body after baby, three years. This That's doesn't right. even look the same, you know. And so we... Um, without realizing it, we easily compare ourselves to others. And um, when those images of of perfection, they actually set up unrealistic expectations. So what I have found that the perfection infection is, is it is having unrealistic expectations of ourselves and unfairly comparing ourselves to others. Mm. And then if we have that going on inside our head and our heart, which we easily do just simply because of what we're surrounded by, I mean, this is particularly now we're the Pinterest generation. Yeah, totally. Everything's a picture now. Right. And so then without realizing it, it can, that perfection infection can leak right into our parenting. Mm. And suddenly we can have unrealistic expectations of our kids and we can unfairly compare our kids to other kids. Maybe their sibling, 
maybe the neighbor kids, maybe somebody at church. But without realizing it, we can easily do that, and we become very concerned about what people think. Yeah. And that imposes that our kids have to be perfect. And boy, all all of a sudden you are in a perfect storm. And that's ultimately what I saw in my own life, which is um, really why eventually I wrote No More Perfect Kids, because I began to deal with the perfection infection in my own parenting and saw that begin to change my relationship with my children for the better. Yeah. What are some of the antidotes? What are some of the the things we can we can use to kind of maybe soften it or or you know to start to affect it well um i've identified four antidotes and those are they they're easy to remember because they spell out the word clap okay e l a p which is uh our kids need us to be the ones that are clapping for them you know that we're encouraging them so the c is compassion and uh, c- compassion, uh, out of, in my journey, was something that, honestly, I have learned recently. I would describe myself in my first years of parenting as a buck-up mom. <laughs> buck up. Just Why buck up. Sometimes hard. Yeah. Move on. You know, pick yourself up, uh, dust yourself off, and move forward. And, you know, there is a time and a place for that. But honestly, I had very little compassion. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, if my kids literally, like, they were toddlers and they fell and, and, you know, scraped their knee, I was the first to scoop them up Mm -hmm. and love on them and give it a kiss and all of that. But I'm talking as they got a little older and and life got a little harder and relationships more complicated, then suddenly, um, you know, my default answer was to buck up. And um, I've become aware of of our need to be compassionate because what I've learned is buck-up parents try to fix, compassionate parents feel. Mm. And um, my kids need me to feel with them. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Yeah. And that's just a reminder that that goes for parenting as well. Compassion is a choice. It builds a bridge between you and the person who is hurting. Yep. And so compassion is an important antidote. It's beautiful and, and um, essential, right? It's, and ironically, I mean, it's the, it's the first one, so it's, it's going to set the mood, set the it tone. It really is. It really is. You're right. And then the L is love. Um, first uh, Corinthians sixteen fourteen says, let all that you do be done in love. And, um, you know, most of us would say, gosh, I love my kids. But what I'm talking about here is um, the actions that we have towards them when they don't do what we want them to do. <laughs> yep. And if we're really honest, sometimes for most of us, our love is conditional and not unconditional. And, um, and so we really have to learn how to um, be careful with our tongue. Uh, because sometimes, especially in frustration and anger, we can easily lash out. Um, we have to learn how to, to um, respond rather than react. And when we can do that, then our kids truly feel loved, even when they make mistakes. Yeah. So that's the uh, is compassion, L is love. Other and, than rejection, because they could feel just rejected by you. Yes, they absolutely Instead could. of love. And, and then, then all of a sudden they know that it is about what they've – it's about – you really love them conditionally yes. when they get the results you wanted. 
you know, my co-author is Dr. Kathy Cook, and uh, she once had a child that actually said to her, I wish I felt my parents loved me. I only feel like they love me when I do what I what they want me to do. Mm. And I think that speaks volumes. Yeah. I think those parents probably would say, of course my kid knows that I love them. But we're talking about how are your actions when they don't make a good choice? How are your actions when they make a mistake? Um, how are your actions when they don't follow your instructions? And, uh, you know, can you still give them direction, uh, even administer a consequence if necessary, but to do it in a loving way? And that uh, was Jill Savage, author of the book, uh, No More Perfect Kids. Great, great insight, great advice. And doing what we can, folks, to help all of us uh, get over this perfectionistic bug that we might catch, that infection that that's so easily, uh, you know, we, we pick up, but it, it doesn't serve us. It doesn't bring the peace we need. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry South and Becca Hurley. The gang is gathered, and folks, we're locked and loaded. We got a great show. We will be talking about... uh, how uh, the importance, uh, the benefits of a bromance. Your 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 bro needs a bro, so they can hang out and buddy up. You know, we always talk about you know the joke about the bromances that we see on uh, movies and on television. But uh, there is some interesting um, insight that we'll be getting from a psychologist on that topic coming up. Plus, uh, also we're going to be covering the fact that we got to watch out. For for this idea of pushing our kids to be perfect, it's you may be creating a monster. You may be creating bigger problems than uh, than you could anticipate. So we'll get to all of that fun. So much straight ahead. Plus, in the news, the crazy headline: Paul Ryan, who's Speaker of the House, decided uh, he's not running. He's not seeking re-election. He'll just finish his term and be done. January of 2019, he's done. Which, again, on top of a bunch of these young congressmen and women, they're just not wanting it. Chaffetz left early. Trey Gowdy, I don't know if he's going to stay in. but No, he's out. He's done, done. Paul Ryan, done. They they just don't want to be a part of it. They're not getting any progress. uh, Some people on background, so you you get like the sources said type of thing, but on background they're saying it's not fun. You go into Congress, you run for office because you feel like you're going to make a difference for the people you're running for, and you have these idealistic ideas, and you get there and you see that, oh, there's two teams – uh, as a as and a no, yeah. as a first year member of the House or the Senate, you can't get anything done because you have to get people to help you, and no one wants to help the new guy. And- so if if you're if you're not motivated to get anything done, and all the young good people are leaving, what I guess then it's just the people that like power. I guess you you get there to create coalitions to keep your team. On top, I yeah, guess. I guess it's like, yeah, you're just really good at defense. It's about there's run- no scores. So it turns into re-election and whatever issues will help your side of the aisle. Yeah. That's the whole point you're in Congress. Many say that's like a soccer match. Yeah. Just lots of great defense. 
no scoring, run out the clock, and then fake, uh, do a flop every once in a while. So wow, that's crazy again. And so, and then who wants to run anyway with all the scrutiny you go under and mm-hmm. the money raising you have to do? It's it's a scary thing. What might be happening to our political world? Well, let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? President Trump has claimed that relations between the U.S. and Russia are at their worst level ever, including the Cold War. Wow! Trump, oh wow! Trump sent a series a series of furious tweets this morning, including one warning Russia to get ready for imminent missile strikes against Syria. In a separate tweet, Trump wrote, "Our relationship with Russia is worse now than it has ever been, and that includes the Cold War. There is no reason for this. Russia needs to help us with their economy. Russia needs us to help with their economy. Something yeah. that would be very easy for uh, easy to do." And we need all nations to work together. Stop the arms race. And he put a question mark after that one. Interesting. So he's like, should we stop arming ourselves? I'm not sure. Russia has warned earlier on Wednesday that it was ready to strike back against any U.S. missile strikes over Syria. Well, the neat thing about the announcement is it's strong, but nobody knows what it means. And right. It's vague enough that it could never happen, and it's still fine. But it is, it's interesting that he thinks this is worse relations than we had during the Cold War. I mean, he's read yeah. history, right? No. Okay. Uh, he's watched TV. Yeah. Uh, well, what do they say on Fox News about Cold War? I think this morning they're probably saying that we have the worst relations with Russia ever since the Cold War. Okay. That's kind of what they do. There's an echo chamber that happens. <laughs> Michael Cohen the on Tuesday spoke out for the first time since the FBI raided his home and office, telling CNN the agents who conducted the raid were extremely professional, courteous, and respectful. <clears throat> yeah. Um, calling it a raid, they... They used a warrant, right? Right. So it was a search. It was a legal search. Raid doesn't really sound legal. Right. Uh, President Trump said they broke into his office. It was. It wasn't like Waco. They didn't go in there and like a battering ram and bash the door off the hinges. And well, so. and in fact, Cohen said they were really incredibly courteous, nice respectful. and courteous. Yeah. yeah. And he says that comment, as CNN noted, contradicted President Trump's description of the raids, in which he claimed the FBI broke into the office of one of my personal attorneys. Cohen further told CNN by phone, "I am unhappy to have my personal residence and office raided." However, he said, "I thank them at the conclusion of their search." And asked whether if he was worried about whether this could where this could be headed. He says, I would be lying to you if I told you that I am not. Yeah. Because do I need this in my life? No. Do I want to be involved in this? No. He further characterized the raid as upsetting. Oh yeah. Well, you know that feeling when you've been pulled over but you're really nice to the officer. Yeah. Thank you, officer, thank you. Mm. And in your head you're like, Man. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg confirmed Tuesday that his social networking company may have been receiving subpoena may have received subpoenas as part of the special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe and that people in the company have been interviewed. During a Senate Judiciary hearing, Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont asked if Facebook has been served subpoenas by Mueller and if employees have been questioned. Zuckerberg clearly answered yes. He then began to walk it back. I want to be careful here because our work with the special counsel is confidential, and I want to make sure in an open session I'm not revealing anything. He then clarified, saying, I, act- I'm, I actually am not aware of a subpoena. I believe there may be, but I, I know we're working with them. Zuckerberg uh, will spend Tuesday, yesterday, and then today on Capitol Hill, here appeal, uh, Hill appearing in a few hearings to take questions on Russian troll farms, use of Facebook to interfere with the election, and the 87 million people whose users 
uh, data was uh, used by Cambridge Analytica yeah. and may have been no- notified yesterday. Did you get a notification, I, Matt? I didn't get a notification. I didn't either. I was disappointed. But then again, I don't, didn't click on anything that looked weird. But don't be disappointed that you didn't get <laughs> hacked. I actually was kind of disappointed. I want to be involved in it. You this. want to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're a team member. They need to know that I'm married and that I watch The X-Files and I like Tom Clancy books. Okay, yeah. That's what they need to know. That's what Facebook could tell you. <laughs> Actually, I looked on my, I pulled my personal data uh-huh. from Facebook. Oh yeah, I have told them that I like like well over a hundred TV shows. Really, they think the list goes. Forever. I think they think that I'm like a sixty year old female. Well, that goes without saying. Based on my demographics, I, they really do. It's kind of it's all the it's all the Downton Abbey you like to watch. It, I love that show. And then The Crown. Oh yeah, it's all the Queen stuff. There's you know? something I don't know. So then is it actually like an insult if they're not selling your data? Yeah. It's like, hey, hey like, what about sell me? my data. What about me? Am I not interesting enough? <laughs> yeah. So true. Finally, new research suggests that if you spend half your days on a sunny Hawaiian island, yeah. your life expectancy is more than 81 years. Wow. Yeah. Halfway across the country in Mississippi, you can count yourself lucky if you make it to 75. Wow. Life expectancy. The 10 states with the lowest probability of premature death California, Connecticut, Hawaii, uh, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Vermont, and Washington. Really? I could have told you that one. Yeah. Minnesota, right on the list. Yeah, Minnesota for sure. the news wasn't good for all states. The 10 states with the highest probability of premature death. Any guesses? Uh, The South. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, the best food in the country. That's probably part of the problem. Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, New Mexico, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Oh, yeah. Whoa, you totally called that one. Yeah, it's the yeah. South. Well, it's, that's how this always works. It's always the South. But again, great. And by the way, Mississippi's got some of the most beautiful beaches oh, right. on the Gulf. As one article put it, uh, red states, not so good. Blue states, you're probably going to live a good life. Oh, thanks, blue states. <laughs> For young and middle aged folks, uh, there was hope in the majority of states. The odds of dying for adults aged 20 to 55 declined in 31 states. Good. And Washington, D.C. from 1990 to 2016, the findings showed. Unsurprisingly, opioid use played a large role in some of the negative outcomes. In 1990, opioid use disorder was 52 on the list of things that caused loss of life. In 2016, it was 15th. So really? from 1990 to 2016, it went it's... from 52 on the list to 15th on the list. Yeah. So it's a huge concern. Well, by the way, now all of these, a lot of states are suing. Mm-hmm. The pharmaceutical companies to to pull the old uh, uh, tobacco. They knowingly put out a product that hurt people. Yeah, and they, then and purposely addic- and got promoted addicted. it and yeah. had doctors and made a system. Yeah, uh, the leading cause of years of life lost was heart disease, followed by lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Yeah, is that a thing? Yeah, POD. It's called COPD. COPD or C. Oh, yeah, COPD. Alzheimer's disease and other dementias along with colon cancer rounded out the top five, according to the report. Wow. So a lot of that is diet, though, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is access to health care. I mean, these are poorer communities, poorer states. So it's uh, – except and then Hawaii, all you need is a beach. Right. And, and it's nice outside, so you well, leave your And house. a culture that's not all about more, 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 more. Mm-hmm. In fact, the culture seems less, 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 less. We need more of that. More, less culture. Wow. Yeah. Just an idea. From your coach. All right. Good stuff. Hey, so much to cover.
Uh, we uh, are going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about the benefits of bromance. Don't laugh about it. Uh, do do guys need a buddy of, of bromance? We'll talk about the power with a psychotherapist of uh, the benefits of relationships for men. Whether it's a movie starring Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson or it's Joey and Chandler from Friends, Hollywood tends to portray male friendships in a comedic light. But a good bromance makes for more than just bachelor parties and fist bumps. A few months ago, I spoke with Amy Morin, a psychotherapist, about uh, what a bromance is and how it can be beneficial for men in uh, in uh, their other relationships. We began the interview by talking about the importance of a bromance. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we look at them and, you know, sort of shared with a wink of like, oh, two guys watching, you know, an NFL game or something like that. But yeah, studies show that it has tremendous benefits and that we should be giving more respect to men who have close male friendships. Why do you think we we laugh it off as much? I mean, I, I've even, I, I've talked about it on the show that even the word bromance kind of laughs it off. And yet we also want men healthier. So what what is it about, why would we need to laugh off male friendships. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it, that we tend to do that. We give women the respect of you can have a BFF or a girlfriend go shopping for the day or you talk on the phone every day and and nobody thinks twice about it. But yeah, something about our culture when it comes to men, we I don't know why we tend to think that they shouldn't have other male friendships. I think it just speaks volumes about our view of masculinity that somehow a strong man should, you know, be more like the lone wolf rather than somebody who has lots of close friends and that we tend to think men don't talk about their feelings and you shouldn't have somebody that you have that close relationship to and you're stressed out that you could call them on the phone, but instead it's somebody maybe that you go play golf with or you, you know, help out somebody with a home improvement project, but you're not actually close friends. Yeah. it's And maybe we're not, you know, in the middle of our home improvement project together, we're not opening up. We're not, right. you know, crying or. But, I, but talk about the benefits because that's what really surprised me about your article. I mean, the the research shows they serve a lot of. They have a purpose and they serve a lot of different angles of health. Yeah, you know, for one, they found that um, it having a, a really close friendship it increases oxytocin in the brain, and that's usually the hormone that we think of when you're in love, when you're in a relationship, but actually gets released too when you have a really close bond with somebody, even if it's a a same-sex platonic relationship. And they found that, for one, it increases generosity. When people have more oxytocin in the brain, they become more kind and generous. So who wouldn't want the man in their life to be kind and generous? Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Ladies, listen up. And that it also increases, uh, improves pain tolerance, that people can their threshold for pain actually goes up when they have more oxytocin in their brain and they tend to have decreased pain overall. So somebody that tends to have a lot of aches and pains, close friendship can help that. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I mean, like it's, it's a, it's a pain reliever and a stress reliever and a generosity increaser. 
It's crazy. And, you know, the, the list could go on and on. I only included a few in my article, but there's lots of stuff from it. You know, increases trust, it decreases fear, lots of stuff. And we think, you know, we talk about modern medicine and all the drugs that get prescribed to take care of a lot of ailments where people end up getting a lot of different treatments. But oxytocin could actually cure a lot of those things. And really to, to get those benefits, you just need a close bond with people in your life. Does Does it matter who the bond is with? I mean, it seems like uh, some of our oxytocin needs are usually met more with our spouse, with our kids. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good way to do to do that. But you can also get the same benefits from having close friends, which hmm. I think is amazing. So whether it is that you spend time with your spouse, but they also found that it in- improves your relationships with anybody in your inner circle. So if a man has a really close friend who's a coworker or somebody else in his life, it will actually increase his bond with his children or increases his bond with his spouse. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I think that's fantastic. And yet it's oxytocin, kind of the age-old bonding chemical that that we get uh, when we are intimate with our partner. We get it when – women get it when um, feeding their baby, breastfeeding, when in a great bonded conversation even. But men, it's always kind of been brushed off as we only get it having sex. Right, right, yeah. We but apparently about not. Apparently we right. get it just being buddies. Isn't Right. That, it's much easier than you think. Or we talk about it when women are in labor. You know, you don't necessarily have to um, just get it during those certain times in your life. You can produce it on your own if you say, hey, I'm going to figure out how I can have some close people in my life and spend time with them. That, that naturally increases the oxytocin in your brain. That is great. Is it um, – when you think about it as a counselor, how many times now you can go prescribe it? And how many relationships would that improve if you could just get the husband to take on a friend? <laughs> right. Sometimes I think the solutions are much simpler than we think. And I, I talk to so many couples and wives will often you know, complain that their husband's spending too much time with his buddies. But when you look at the benefits of it, you think – well, shouldn't we be encouraging this even more? Right. Isn't he nicer? Isn't he more caring when he comes home? Isn't he more loving? Well, yeah, but he's never home. <laughs> right. Which can be the issue. But to look at, you know, how do you spend quality time with somebody and how do you make sure that you make the best of it? And if he's out doing things with his buddies and he comes home, you might have more quality time rather than quantity. Yeah. In the study, um, in another study you cited, they, they did a little um, – They sprayed nasal spray that had oxytocin in it. And these dads, when they had the oxytocin on board, were better dads. They played with their babies more. They were more attentive. I mean, this is like if women could just get their hands on that spray, forget the friend. Some doctors prescribe the nasal spray. I think you can buy it over the counter too. I can't speak to whether the (laughs) over the counter stuff works, but I think again that just speaks volumes to our desire to figure out how do you how do you increase those feel good hormones so that you can enjoy those kinds of benefits. Because yeah, I hear from moms all the time who will say, you know, he hardly is ever around or he's not paying attention to the kids. But what if that's all it took to really increase that bond between the dad and his baby? Talk about, I guess the study involved studying rats that live together. It seems like rats that live together and men having bromances wouldn't go hand in hand. But maybe talk to us a little bit about the study. Yeah, it seems like it's a little bit of a stretch, which, you know, I agree humans and and rats are two separate beings. But what they found with, with rats was... 
when they housed them all together, they were all competing for food and water, and they were aggressive towards each other until they had a little bit of stress. When the researchers introduce some stress into their environment, the rats start to huddle together. When they huddle together, it increases the oxytocin in their brain, and then they start to cooperate. And I think normally we'd expect the opposite results. If you were to add some stress to an environment, we might think that competition gets worse. Yeah. But they found that when they added some stress, when they huddled together, they formed this sort of rat bromance, and all of a sudden they're being kinder to each other. And I think if we were to extrapolate that to humans, sometimes we see that, you know, that um, we're in competition with each other. And when we get stressed out, sometimes we think that, competition gets worse but when you look at something like a natural disaster the community all comes together sometimes to help out and say how can we help one another because they're put underneath stress and they know we're all in this together and i think that when the researchers looked at this they said you know if we could just figure out how does this extrapolate to, to humans that if as long as they have some oxytocin in their brain and close relationships that they become more cooperative rather than competitive yeah wow you um you, it's interesting because you can see that, and I, I just work with a lot of couples, and I see that a lot of what you were saying a minute ago about pushing. We we want our partner to our our husband to go out and maybe be more social, but uh, th- there is that weird thing where there might be an inherent competition. They might in, immediately not hit it off with someone else. Uh, I mean, also on board is the chemical testosterone, right? So men have more testosterone and an injection of oxytocin softens them, I guess. But they also still are probably more competitive naturally just because of other chemicals in their body. Right, absolutely. And so then you have to look at, you know, how do you how do you help men instead of competing? How do you help them cooperate so that they're not in that contest all the time to be the alpha male or to you know, show off who's got the biggest muscles or who's got the makes the most money or drives the best car or whatever it might be, but to say, how do you how do you help people cooperate in life, which I think is a dilemma, you know, outside of this study too, but how do you how do you make people stop, you know, looking around and resenting other people's success? How do you say, how do we all work together all the time, whether we're under stress or just everyday life? How do you work together so that you're not competing with everybody? Oh, yeah. And two, it seems like um, a lot of guys that I work with, they their wives, they don't have the same kind of interest. So a guy may want to burn off some of that energy climbing a mountain on his mountain bike um, but the wife, uh, does, she'll, she'll do it once in a while but doesn't want to. And so there's some of that competition that might even bond some of these men because they can all go have a competition. They can go play ball. They can go do something that gets the energy out and apparently the oxytocin in. And, um, and they, they actually bond in the competition. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because that's the thing I hear all the time, too, from women. Like, oh, I don't like kayaking, but I'll do it. I'll do they it. They don't enjoy it. And right. then you say, well, you know, well, what's the benefit of doing it anyway? And which sometimes there can be. But on the other hand, then to say, well, you know, if this is something that your spouse enjoys, how can you encourage him to have these hobbies and, and to go out and do those things with his friends and be okay with it? So that you can enjoy those benefits. Amy Morin is joining us. She is has a website, Amy Morin, M-O-R-I-N, lcsw.com. Amy Morin, lcsw.com. She's an author uh, and a writer for Psychology Today, wrote a wonderful article called The Surprising Benefits of Bromance. Male bonding can make guys healthier, happier, and better dads as well. And she's uh, joining us today to talk about that article. Amy, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. So if guys need relationships, need a, you know, a good buddy, um, I mean, and it helps them, what, what can we do um, if, if, if your husband, let's say, isn't prone to just get out there and make friends and, and naturally get into the finding a best friend, what are some things that, that might you know, make the road a little easier for them to get a friend? Yeah, obviously after you, you know, graduate from high school, you're out of college, it's harder to, to go out and meet people in your community. And if you, depending on where you work or who you, what groups and organizations you're involved in, you may hit it off with somebody, but you might not. And I think for women to encourage men to get involved in something that they're interested in, whether they join some sort of a community organization or a civic group or or at their church, but to reach out and talk to people and to just figure out who's out there and what do you have in common with. And I think to find find the things that men naturally like to do. So if you are married to somebody who enjoys rock climbing, we'll figure out if there's a rock climbing group. And we know that that's how men often bond is through activities. And so if there's an activity that he enjoys doing by going out and doing those things, he'll naturally meet some people that he probably has some things in common with. Totally. And like I, I was just sitting there thinking of my – you use the word natural. It, it it can't be something they don't naturally like or want to do because guys bond in a weird way it seems like. Just doing something, the activity seems more bonding than maybe the conversation per se. Yeah, and I think, you know, women bond differently. They can just talk and and – talk about anything and often feel like they've bonded and women have this notion of well i have this girlfriend so we're all going to go out to dinner and you're going to become friends with her husband the (laughs) husbands may have nothing in common and the expectation that they're somehow going to be friends and bond by eating dinner together once a month is is not particularly helpful i think that that really sets them up for failure because they're thinking well you know i don't really have much in common with this person and he's not somebody i would call on a on a weekday and say, do you want to go golfing or something like that? And so I think for women to not put that pressure on men that you have to be best friends with our, our friends' spouses. Yeah, except like if they if they love cycling, then great. Go get in a group of cycling cyclists and, and, and see. See if you can find someone there um, or if they like whatever, basketball or whatever. Um, what else? What are some other ways that make it uh, a little easier for men to – I guess to want to do this. I mean, I, I always look at it like my my wife's my friend. Everyone at work I'm with eight hours a day are my friends. That's kind of what I need. And then um, I get home and my kids I want to spend time with. So they become my friends. I almost don't feel like I need a friend. Well, I think plenty of people feel like that, right? You get caught up in a daily grind. And, and obviously as an adult with other responsibilities, you have less time. And I think that that's okay, but to have somebody that you can call if you were stressed out or somebody that you can spend time with outside of your family, because I think we can sometimes almost lose our identity of who we are and what we like to do. And I'll work with women who will say, well, my husband's not home sometimes. So when I get home from work, I had this one lady who her husband got out a couple hours earlier than she did. And if she came home and he wasn't there yet, she would call him up yelling and screaming (laughs) and ranting and raving about why he needed to get home right away. And well, I would talk to her about, well, you know, do you think that motivates him to come home? Does he want to come home to you when you're, you know, raving about how he needs to be home all the time? Yeah. And 
can really change that mindset to know that it's okay and it's a good role model for your kids to have a healthy friendship. So to give yourself permission to say, I'm going to go out of the house and have and meet up with a friend tonight so I won't be home for dinner. Doing that once in a while is completely healthy and and for women to be able to encourage that and say that that's okay too. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's such a great way to look at it too because um, it could very well just be a skill that they need to acquire or accumulate. There, are, I know people that are a little more introverted. They maybe are a little uh, more shy, and they just they don't ever want to seem like they need someone, right? And, right. and so all of a sudden, going out, <laughs> especially if you're getting pressure from your spouse, like, did you make meet any friends today? <laughs> it's <laughs> just going to create a really a lot of pressure on the guy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and again, the awkward, like, forced trying to make friends on purpose. Um, what did you do at lunch? What, did you talk to anybody at the lunchroom today? No, I didn't, honey. <laughs> it isn't going to be particularly helpful. But to know that when you can build those natural relationships in areas of your life is when it just, you know, it doesn't feel so forced or painful. Yeah. It's such an interesting um, world because we do um, – it seems like we don't necessarily always raise our kids, especially our male children, to get into their emotions, to get into their feelings. And now we're almost – now the science is proving it it's valuable. I think it's always been proving that. Um, and yet we want to try to turn something that we didn't necessarily teach them when they were young. Maybe this is something that might be more valuable to teach our kids to change the future generations. Oh, I think absolutely. To make it clear to kids that, you know, your your school buddies that you're hanging out with on, on the weekends sometimes too or that you have a play date with once in a while, that that's really valuable. You can learn so many skills, but also just really good for your body, for your mind to, yeah. to have those close friends. Does – when you look at this as a counselor um, – does it – I guess, too, this is something that – because the oxytocin exists in the male-female relationship as well. Maybe having a strong friendship with your spouse would enable you to gain the skills and the tools to take it elsewhere. I mean, eventually oh, we're going to lose our – I'm going to maybe – I doubt it, but possibly could outlive my wife. And if I do, then what, right? Or if I lose right. my spouse, then what? Then I have – Nobody, when my kids are out of the house, I mean, this is a big deal down the road, too. Oh, absolutely. And I I was widowed when I was 26. Mm, Oh, that's right. I remember your story, right? Yeah. And so to be able to say, how do you you then say, you know, I have this special bond with my spouse? How do I translate that to other relationships? Absolutely. How do I make sure that I have close people in my life so that I can still be bonded and to enjoy healthy relationships? Because I think it is so easy to get caught up in, you know, I have myself and my kids and I don't really need much from the outside world. And and it goes both ways. We hear that, but then you also hear people who say, you know, he's not a family man or he's not around enough. So how do you find that balance somewhere in the middle so that you can say I have a healthy relationship with my family, but I also have a life outside of my family occasionally as well? Yeah, the balance is the key, isn't it? I guess that's yeah. somehow being able to manage the present and the future. You got to be able to get prepared for what you'll need in the future, yet still live it in the present. That's always the challenge, isn't it? In almost everything we do in life to figure out how do you find that balance and sometimes it feels like things are out of whack and you need to reprioritize and change things around but to to make sure that you're striving to make things as balanced as you can. 
Yeah. Interesting. It's great. It's great insight. Amy, as we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing, the one thing we should all remember when it comes to our relationships and um, and especially maybe the guys need to make sure they're practicing to, to make this principle work? I guess I would say just don't be afraid to reach out for and talk to people. I think that we tend to, in today's digital world, we tend to do too much on social media and not enough in-person social contact. So I think to reach out to to people in real life and spend time with the people that we care about is probably the best thing we can do at this point. Yeah, that's good. Amy Morin, thank you so much. And keep up the great work there at amymorinlcsw.com. You're, you're a great resource. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. Also, you can check out her articles if you go to psychologytoday.com. Just Google Amy Morin. You can look at her TED Talks and go get her book. She's She's doing it all. And uh, teaching us how to be healthier friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, when I think of bromance, I don't think of anybody more than Terry South, uh, who's been researching friendships and male friendships and bromances. Yeah, I, I Googled how to make a friend. And there's <laughs> been a recent study published. Oh, really? Yeah. So what have you learned about friend making? So, now, now this is, you, you did this because your wife said, Terry, we need to get you a friend. She said that multiple times. She's yeah. also said that she needs to make more friends because yes. we both get so caught up in what yeah. we're doing. You're we in never... your life. And all I want to do is sit in my house, pull the blinds, and get through the 200 <laughs> shows recorded on my DVR. But no one wants me to do that. Yeah, so. that's, yeah. They're what are you going to do? You. Jeffrey Hall, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Kansas, set out mm. to find the answer to the study, to the question of how long does it take to make a friend. Okay. 355 adults. Yeah. Who had recently moved and were getting to know a new acquaintance were asked a series of questions. They described how much time they spent with that with a person, how they typically spent those hours together, and how close they felt over time. He also, Hall, the professor, also asked 112 university freshmen who had just moved to their college town similar questions, went through their experience, and here's what he found. Okay. It takes about 40 to 60 hours of time spent together in the first few weeks after meeting for people to form a casual friendship. 40 to 60 hours for casual friendship to occur. Okay. To transition from casual friend to friend, it takes about 80 to 100 hours of together time. Wow. That's a lot of friends. Yeah. And then it says for friends to become good or best friends, which I was told once that as an adult male, you never have. You can't have a best friend anymore. You have a wife. Okay. Who told you that? A guy I used to work with. Okay. That was funny. So for friends to become good or best friends, it takes about 200 or more hours spent together hmm. to have a best friend. A bestie. Now, you would think a best friend would be someone you want to confide in. Yeah. So maybe the 200 hours is to build that level of trust where you feel that person is someone right. who you could talk to and they would you know, respect yeah. your you know, thoughts and give you ideas that you respect. Okay, that's interesting. Different stages of a person's life may require more time or less time investment. Uh, he says, would a single young adult from form friendships faster than a married middle-aged person? That's a question Hall can't answer with this study. Yeah. But probably you would think just because the married middle-aged person has other things going on than living in a dorm. Right. Well, okay, what do you, what do you think about this? Because uh, it seems like 
I if I'm at work all day, I have a bunch of guys around me, people around me. I feel like they're my friends. Right. And it says here hours spent together strongly predicted friendship closeness, but not if that time was spent at work or in school, places where people weren't interacting by choice. Ah. You have to make the choice to interact to form friendships. Which explains huh. why you feel like you have this friendship at work, yeah. but when you see that person outside of work, it's weird. Well, it's totally weird. Because you're like, whoa. Do we hug or do we that, that's that's where, that's where I have my bubbles, right? I have <laughs> yeah. work. I have home. When they cross. Yeah, weird stuff. It's like in Ghostbusters. You don't cross the stream from the, 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 the ecto-packs, yeah. right? From the, the, it's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's going to blow up. There's explosions that cause <laughs> Never a problem. cross your streams. Never cross the streams. The best way to spend time seemed to be just hanging out together, watching TV or playing video games. People became closer by doing things they liked and enjoyed each other's company while doing it. Yeah. Whereas work, you're, you have to be here. But now, okay, so watch, though. But I think it's more still compartmentalized because if I go to work, I have those people I hang out with at work. Right. Then if I go – and then if I want to choose – I mean I don't see where I would be like, hey, I'm just going to now choose to call Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy and I are going to just go sit at the park and talk. I don't yeah. – so, so it seems like what I would call Jimmy to do is, hey, do you want to go to a game? Right. Do you want to go to on a bike ride? So it's still based on a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's not based on you. No. It's still based on what we will do together. Right. But that hobby will grow as you spend more time together than the friendship grows separate from necessarily the hobby. Yeah, but I'm only ch- – I mean if, yeah, I if, if you can't go to the game, I'll, I'm still going. I'll just – I'll take somebody someone else. else. Yeah. It's not like, oh, okay, I'll just sit home then because you can't go. I Right. It just seems like it's he says, different for me. Uh, time spent talking didn't make people particularly closer, but chatting was better when they were striving to make a connection, hmm. catching up with their friends, asking them how their day was going and how their day was going, and joking around. Small talk, on the other hand, seemed to be the enemy of friendship. People who talked about mundane topics became less close over time. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. As far as <laughs> small talk's boring, is what they're saying. Right. And it's what you do when you're stuck in a party and you can't leave. You talk about the weather. Well, and isn't small talk really interpreted individually? Like, oh, my heavens, all he talks about is cars. Yeah. That seems like small talk to me. But for two people that love cars, it's nirvana. Mm. It's heaven on earth. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think this is uh... – I, No, I think, I think it's accurate. But I um, – again, I'm a guy that's a fairly sensitive guy. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, maybe it's because I, my living is talking. Mm. So what I really want in a friend is them to just shut their mouth. And listen? No. Oh. Just, let's just sit in quiet. Sit in silence. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't sound very friendly. <laughs> trying well, to, I'm trying to, we're reaching out to this uh, professor. See yeah, if he'll join us that. and you can explore think, more of these I think questions. fascinating. What I want in a friend is like a mute. Hmm. Just somebody that – and so, I, don't, I don't want to talk. I just want us to sit there. And in effect, I have that by not really associating with anyone. It's yeah. just quiet. It's I know, great. but then we worry about you. No, it's fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm happy. I, I feel as if I'm fulfilled. Yeah. If I need something more, there's a video game I can play. Yeah. Great. You can go Fortnite, people. <laughs> 
Good stuff. Good stuff. Lessons learned on the Matt Townsend Show about your friendships and your spouse's friends. Uh, We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. We'll be talking about no more perfect kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, as we're uh, trying to help you in your parenting approach with your kids, one of the things we want to overcome is the infection of perfection. A lot of us as parents want to uh, take our dreams that we had in high school and maybe push those onto our kids, but uh, it it doesn't necessarily bode well for them. So we we had a guest on the show a while back named Jill Savage. She's the co-author of the book No More Perfect Kids. And uh, she talked to us about how to manage uh, the perfection expectations, and we wanted to revisit that interview. Uh, to, to, to begin, I asked her to explain what her acronym CLAP uh, meant specifically. The P is perception. Mm. Uh, Proverbs 4.25 says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Now, I really have uh, come to understand that my tendency with my children, particularly because I had a house full of them, I had five of them, uh, my tendency was to parent by herd. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I would herd them all to the grocery store. I would herd us all to church. I I needed to herd us all into the car. And when I did that, I wasn't fixing my gaze directly before me on them as individuals. And I wasn't tuned in and perceptive about what was going on inside their head and their heart. Yeah. And so that's really what the antidote of perception does. It, it allows you to look beneath the surface and to actually read the cues that your child is sending uh, it, it allows you to move from surface um, parenting to deep, intuitive parenting. Yeah, that's and beautiful. That really has made a difference when my kids feel like I'm seeing them as the individuals that they are. Well, yeah, and then then you can be more open to uh, other information, to other variables, other metrics that may not always be so obvious. Right, right. And, um, you know, that's, uh, we have a, um, a couple of our kids have dealt with depression. Um, we have one child that has some pretty severe mental health issues. Um, uh, he was adopted. We adopted him when he was nine and he has really struggled with those and, um, perception. I'll, I'll be honest with you. My husband was more perceptive than I was. Yeah. And so I've kind of had to learn to, um, be more discerning be a little bit more tuned in. I'm kind of a, well, if there's something wrong, they'll tell me. Mm -hmm. And um, that wasn't really working, if I'm really honest with myself. And um, so I had to to learn how to look beneath and dig a little more and tune into them uh, a little more individually. And what a difference that has made uh, to uh, really take my relationship with my Beautiful, imperfectly, Im- yeah. Im- perfectly imperfect children. <laughs> but it also seems like that's by doing it that way. Then all of a sudden, they realize that there's this sense with mom that she she does pay attention. She does know she wants us to be our best, but she's also good with who we are. Yeah, 
There really is. And here's the deal. I think that in dealing with the perfection infection in our life as well as our children's lives, we have to, I think our goal is not to be perfect or to expect them to be perfect, but it is to um, replace being perfect with being perfected. Mm. And uh, we need that in our lives. We need to embrace that we are being perfected. God does his best work through the cracks in our lives, if we'll let him. And in our children's lives, um, he is perfecting them through their mistakes, through the, when they experience consequences of maybe poor choices. That is a perfecting process. Yeah. And we need to stop seeing that as a bad thing that represents us poorly, but instead to see it as a good thing because we are becoming uh, stronger, more mature. And ultimately, if we can learn to handle those tough seasons of life or those tough situations, if we can handle them God's way, then he's perfecting us to become more like Christ. Boy, what a powerful lesson when you think about it. And and then as you can do that and settle in being okay and and good with everybody having cracks, then, then your children can accept their cracks and see them as opportunities. You're exactly right. And here's what I learned. When I began to embrace God's perfecting work in my own life, I stopped worrying about what people thought. Yeah. And when I stopped worrying about what people thought, I stopped being a controlling parent. And when I stopped being a controlling parent, I increased my ability to influence each of my kids by using the perfection, infection, antidotes of compassion, love, acceptance, and perception. That's cool. And leaving perception perfection infection parenting behind resulted in a freedom and contentment in my relationships with my beautifully created perfectly imperfect children <laughs> it's such a perfect it's a perfect statement perfectly imperfect which is and as soon as you're so okay with that it's it seems like that's when it all begins yes that is exactly right. It really is. Yeah. Because then they can be real with you. They can be honest with you. Um, you are they. They know that they're that your expectations aren't off the charts. Uh, they they know that you know that they're in process, mm. and that um, progress is the goal, not perfection. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I didn't get serious about perfection, infection, parenting until. My kids um, were ages 12 to 25. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, in a way it's a little harder. That, that's the harder stage, right? Cause it is. They've, got, they've all got their own ideas, their own they attitudes. They really do. So, you know, oftentimes parents are like, well, gosh, I screwed it up in the early years. Guess what? You, it is never, ever too late to deal with perfection infection parenting, yeah. even if your kids are adults. And, um, you know, to, to look at, have I unfairly compared this child to their sibling, to someone else, to someone more successful, to someone who gets better grades or who got more scholarships? Um, have I had expectations of them that have been unrealistic? Yeah. And so I think no matter the age of our kids, those are two questions that uh, I, I really ask parents to consider. And then if you can answer, yes, I have had some pretty unrealistic expectations and I've unfairly compared them, guess what? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. That was Jill Savage, uh, author of the book, No More Perfect Kids. Great advice. Do you have unrealistic expectations for your kids? And um, and are they just – are they your expectations instead of uh, – 
the child's expectations. That I think matters just as much as well, because whether they're yours um, or their child's matters in the child's mind, even if your expectations are right and accurate and good, somehow we've got to make it, uh, it's got to come from them, which would be more listening, probably more exploring with them, more communicating, less uh, cajoling, less manipulating, less controlling. Anyway, just ideas, doing what we can to uh, to give you a leg up in your parenting role. It's not an easy thing, but it is such a beautiful uh, gift we've all got uh, to, to be in relationships with the people around us. Let's make sure we're maximizing those. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Dr. Matt here, along with uh, Terry and Becca. We are gathered, ready to make it happen for you folks. Today we're going to be talking about uh, 10 things that you wish you had known before you got your kid their cell phone. Great guest. Brooke Romney will be joining us. A lot of us get the pressure from our kids because all of their friends have these cell phones. And all everyone's got one, Mom. Everyone. And so I need to have one. And so we kind of feel pressured into giving in, I guess. Today we'll be talking with Brooke about what you do instead of just buckling. A lot of, like with my, my brothers running into this issue right now, and it's the convenience factor. Yeah. Being able to just call your kid, they answer the phone. So convenient. They come home or wherever they're at, you can figure out. And so they got him a flip phone. Right. He doesn't have the smartphone. Well, and she'll get into it because, but you almost have to set down the guidelines ahead of time. My kids don't answer my call the second I call. Well, yeah. So, because we didn't set down the guideline that, no, this is, there is one name that matters to you on this phone and it's our, it's your mom and dad's two names. So when we call, you kill yourself to answer that phone. I don't care where you are. You respond. And if you can't answer it, you text me immediately and say, I'm in a meeting. But, um these are the guidelines you need to set down and and how to set up for success uh with your kids and she does suggest start with a start with a flip phone start there Look, and, she says, and, oh. and, ma- and make them prove it hmm. prove that you can do it prove that you're you understand how this works there's a responsibility factor yeah really interesting uh conversation first and ahead. foremost can they not lose it Oh, yeah. Because you don't want to get a smartphone and, I lost it, Dad. I don't know where oh, it went. Oh, my son dropped his. Oh. And he's like, yeah, it just doesn't work anymore. So let's just get a new one. Yeah. I mean, let's just upgrade. We're, we're up for an upgrade anyway, aren't we? And I'm like, no, we're not doing that anymore. He's, I'm like, you have a brother leaving on an LDS mission in a few months. You can wait five months to get another phone. And he looked at me like, what? are you crazy? But it's broken. Dad, I'm 13. My social life will fall apart. Well, you shouldn't have dropped your phone. <laughs> That's the point. That's the point. Do they have a case on the phone? Oh, yeah. Okay. They have a case, but it's still, but it just turned, it just broke. It's just, but by the way, we're insured. Yeah. So let's get it in. Well, the, yeah, but mom never takes me to get it in. Well, then negotiate with your brother that's home all day sitting on the couch to go <laughs> take you in. You can use the phone to download an app and learn to use the bus system. Exactly. Look at See, that. Solutions oh, everywhere. going to be a great parent. You can already tell. She, and by the way, this might also work. 
some of these ideas might work for if you're, if you're thinking of getting your do- uh, dog for your child. Right. Some guidelines before you just pull out a puppy. I have one guideline. What's that? It's not happening. No puppy. <laughs> no puppy. There's no the puppy guideline. for you. That's, That's what my dad said. Everybody says that. That's why my mom got me a hermit crab. There you go. Sadly, it died. So do you get the child a smaller animal and say, here, try this one out for size yeah, for a try, while? Get one that has like a, a really short life expectancy. Okay. Like rats. Do they have a short life expectancy? Yeah. So they're they're really good pets. They they usually live about a year. Really? Uh-huh. But they're also very affectionate and fun. and Rats? Rats, yeah. Hmm. They have such a bad stigma. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Just the dirty ones. Get a clean rat, but it's going to die in a year. Then you could teach about life and death. Mm-hmm. Sounds traumatic. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get to the headline. Speaking of traumatic, what else is going on, Terry, that we should be paying attention to? House Speaker Paul Ryan confirmed Wednesday that he will not run for re-election this year, and Senator Chuck Schumer has some advice for the departing congressman. He says, with this newfound political freedom, I hope the Speaker uses his remaining time in Congress to break free from the hard-right factions of his caucus that have kept Congress from getting real things done, Schumer said. He went on uh, saying, while other top Republicans jockeying for Ryan's spot will make the end of his term complicated, he's confident Ryan is up to the job. Wow, I bet that makes him feel so comfortable. (laughs) No, it doesn't. So comforted. But, I mean, we've seen, uh, what, Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona... Uh, Gowdy, yeah, Trey Gowdy from what, one of the Corker, North Carolina was Corkers. It, Corker was in and out and in and out. And, and once they're out, they feel this new freedom and they start speaking their mind. Yeah. The, so maybe that'll happen. Who knows? Yeah. As, going look, on. I don't think he'll do it as the Speaker of the House, though. I no. Think there's too much weight with oh, that yeah. office to just start popping Do we off, know so. who's, who's next in line? There's no secession plan. There's like three or four guys who have been, uh, who people have asked. Are you interested? And they're like, yeah, sure, but yeah. Where where does it go? You have to get a coalition together. You, you run like a mini campaign within right. the house to get that job because then everyone votes on it, and then you go from there. So we'll see. More drama. That's all we need. Right. Neither former President Barack Obama nor President Donald Trump are on the invite list for Prince Harry's royal wedding next month. Whoa. Kensington Palace announced. No British or foreign political leaders have been invited to the prince's wedding to Meghan Mar- Markle. Uh, Harry is not a direct heir to the throne, so there is no formal guest list, a palace spokesman said. Yeah. His brother, an heir to the throne, here are people that must show, must be here. <laughs> when it's Harry, it's like you have a little bit of yeah, leeway. Would, yeah. There was talk that they wanted to invite the Obamas, but not the Trumps, and, they, and then the... The uh, the government came in and went, okay, that's going to be a little complicated if you don't invite the sitting president, but you invite his predecessor. Yeah. So what are we going to do here? And they're like, we won't invite anybody. So there's no politicians at the wedding, which might be a blessing in itself. Oh, absolutely. Harry and Marco will tie the knot in St. George Chapel on May 19th, a much smaller venue than the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's wedding at Westminster Abbey seven years ago. A royal biographer told the Daily Mail that the 600-person guest list will avoid upsetting diplomatic ties with the U.S., as many speculated that Barack and Michelle would get an invite, but not Donald and Melania. Mm. Which I kind of wanted to see just to find out what's what like what would he counter program the wedding? Yeah, would he get on Twitter and just unload that day because of the perceived slight of not going to the royal wedding when other politicians were invited? So, yeah, I, we're gonna miss that drama here in a little bit. So, Thank but it's okay because Comey's book comes out next week. Yeah, 
This is going to get crazy. It's going to be nuts. So uh, CIA Director Mike Pompeo has called Hillary Clinton morally reprehensible. Oh, boy. He has said her handling of the 2012 Benghazi attack was worse in some ways than Watergate and has asserted that she was more concerned with her legacy in its wake. Now he is asking her for advice. Pompeo, tapped by President Trump to replace the ousted Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, has reached out to Clinton, along with every other living former secretary, to perhaps prepare for a difficult Senate confirmation hearing. Clinton, perhaps unexpectedly, didn't just ignore the phone call. There were lengthy discussions between the former state secretaries and the a potential secretary-to-be, uh, sources told Politico. Maybe it's because Clinton sees a glimmer of hope in her adversary, as she said earlier this week. Pompeo didn't uproot career intelligence officials when he joined the CIA, as Clinton noted, adding that uh, she hoped he could rebuild a State Department that Tillerson decimated. Pompeo will sit before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee tomorrow. Wow. So he reached out to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Because she's been in that seat, she's been through those types of hearings, get some ideas, maybe some tips on what he can do to prepare. Interesting. Huh. And, and he did. He, well, that's that sounds like the way it should be, right? That shouldn't yeah. be surprising, but it that's is. been surprising. <laughs> Recently it has. That's good. People playing grown up. Finally, there's a good reason why Molly Schurler is ranked the top food warrior in the world of competitive eating. Oh, why? Oh, really? Schuller devoured a large stack of eight hamburgers totaling an astounding 55 ounces in under two minutes. Oh, wow. Why? Schuller is the top-ranked competitive eater, according to the website competitiveeaters.com, which is where you would find competitive eating information, competitiveeaters.com. Yeah. To get a sense of just how impressive the feat is. Now, she ate 55 ounces of uh, hamburger, right? So eight hamburgers totaling 55 ounces. It says that would be the equivalent of, so a McDonald's Big Mac holds two 1.6-ounce beef patties. So that means she ate the equivalent of slightly more than 17 Big Macs uh, in two minutes. That is <laughs> In awful. two minutes? It says, but oh. with two buns at opposite ends of the pile. Schiller, 38, from Sacramento, California, is a mother of four who makes a living from competitive eating. She weighs 120 pounds and is considered by some to be one of the best competitive eaters in the world. Wow, but that's... I'm trying to figure out which part of that statement is most impressive. Yeah. The fact that she earns a living doing competitive eating. Oh, yeah, that's big money. So 55 ounces of burger in under two minutes, which is the equivalent of 17 Big Macs. Or at least the meat on the Big Macs, not the whole sandwich. Boy, that just makes me sick. Yeah, it does. And I love Big Macs. (laughs) But 17 of them? Yeah, the pictures were something to never see. Competitive eating is gross. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love dipping my hot dog in water... Just like the next guy. But the soggy bun is like the, the it's just not to even watch it. No, oh, yeah. It's just not something that it's more of this sort of freak show because mm-hmm. they're just trash compacting all the food in. And you're like, how yeah. can they do? And then afterwards, how do you feel? Well, I feel full. Well, of course they do. <laughs> you just ate 70 hot dogs. <laughs> That's like a 30th of her body weight. Yeah. Oh, in, man. In two minutes. She was 120 pounds. All that burger. Uh, yeah. But hey, it's a living. It is a living. It's her job. And For how long? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. May she rest in peace. I don't know if she'll live that long. Well, maybe that's all she eats in a week. Maybe. Maybe she eats that. And just Maybe it's like those boa constrictors that they just throw a rat to and then it just lives on the rat for two weeks. Does this count as like athleticism? Mm-hmm. 
other yeah. people who are genetically, you know, yeah, like holy superior cow, for competitive man. eating. You're, yeah, they really they must be right because when you look at them, they're all pretty fit. So you don't they they must be training somehow. It's yeah, just, guess so. Maybe there is hope. Maybe there's something else I can do. Be a competitive eater. But then why would you ruin the good meal by just shoving it down your gullet? Uh, yeah, I have to wonder if she actually still likes hamburgers after that. No. She probably can't stomach them. Ugh. Blah. That's why she's so fit. That's right. Up next, folks, we're going to be talking about the 10 things that I wish I would have done before getting my child a smartphone. It's an article from Brooke Romney, and she's going to walk us through how she as a mother uh, is managing the social media use and the tech use of her children. Children in America live in an environment embedded with electronics, from tablets to TV and smartphones to social media. Kids learn to use these tools at a very young age. One study says that the average age for a child to get their first smartphone is 10 years old. We have with us today Brooke Romney, a freelance author and speaker, uh, who's talking to us about the 10 things that we should do before getting our child a smartphone. Brooke's been on the show before and uh, love having her and her wonderful ideas as a parent and as a human. Brooke, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me again, Matt. This is such a great article. Um, and I, what I love about your writing is it's so real because you're just writing as a mom that's trying to balance her family. Yes, I mean, we all make mistakes, and I have learned that it's okay to share those. Yes. It helps other people, you know, do something better than we did. No, so. it totally is. And, and your honesty is, is huge. I mean, so you've got, you've got how many kids, Brooke? I have four boys. <laughs> um, the oldest is 15, 13, 11, and then I have a six-year-old. Oh, yeah. So you're right in the thick of it. We are, and we started this journey at um, a time when... There wasn't a lot of research. There wasn't a lot of information. I, I feel like it was the wild west of technology parenting. So, <laughs> and and you you do talk about mistakes you made, and one of the points that you make in your article is there are some things that if we had known earlier, we would have set a better expectation or done a little bit of preparation that so we wouldn't have had to deal with the aftermath of the mistake. Yeah, I felt like we were fairly informed parents as much as we could be for what was out there. And we, you know, we tried to have controls and locks and all of these things. But um, I think there's a lot more that we know now. And I wanted to pass that on. We're definitely doing things differently with our second one, with our 13-year-old, and um, because we learned a lot with our first one. So. Well, let's get into these uh, top 10 or the 10 things that you wish you had known before giving your child a smartphone. What, uh, what's, what's your first rule? What's your first learning? Well, before we start, Matt, I want to emphasize that this isn't just smartphones. A lot of people say, oh, well, my kid just has an iPod. It's the exact same thing. Exactly. Um, yeah. I'm not worried about the calling and texting. That's not really the problem right <laughs> now. But so, you know, any, any smart device, before you get your child any type of smart device, these are things that I would do. So the first one is to wait. And I know that, you know, kids are coming home and they're saying, oh my gosh, my friend has this, my friend has that, oh. and everyone has it. I'm the last one. But it's okay for us to be the last one or almost the last one because 
once our kids plug in, you never unplug. And so I would just say, you know, everybody has a different idea of what age is right for their child. But when you start to think it might be right, take a breath and, and wait just a little longer and see how things are going. And especially if, I mean, it's one thing to wait out of ignorance or laziness or fear, but it's another thing you're saying be, it's, it's just, it's smarter. Get ahead of the game instead of rushing into the game. We don't, yeah. our, kid, well, our kids know, don't need to be the early adopters. We, we, you know, people can be early adopters of this technology. It just doesn't have to be your child. Exactly. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be 10. You don't have to be 11. It's okay. And what we've found with, there's a lot of kids that do wait. And as we've watched some of our kids wait a little longer than others, it's not been a problem. Yeah. And, and they will act like it is. They will act like it's, you know, this horrible social thing or that everyone else is cooler than they are. And honestly, that's okay for a couple of years. <laughs> it so. totally is. And, and honestly, too, it teaches them, I think it teaches them to delay gratification. It teaches them a, a lot of stuff that, you know. It does. I mean, it's not a bad thing. So we we wait. Then when you mm-hmm. say that we do start with a phone or technology, you always suggest we start slowly. Yes. And so by this, I mean, start with a flip phone. And, you know, your your kids will tell you that, oh, that's one of my sons said that social suicide mom, a flip phone. And I get it. But what the what this flip phone teaches them is what a phone is actually for. And it helps them understand that it's for communication. You know, they're still able to text their friends. They're able to make plans. They're able to be a part of the group. More importantly, I'm able to get a hold of them and call them and text them and understand where they are and if they need a ride and if there's something to stay after school for. Um, But they also start learning good ways of communication. Hmm. So you need to text somebody back if they text you. You need to, you know, call your mom if you miss her phone call. And then that you need to put a phone away. It's not appropriate to bring your cell phone out in the middle of a play. We keep our cell phones put away um, or in the middle of family dinner. So you can kind of start setting some of those expectations before the phone is a really, really big draw. Oh, yeah. And so they can kind of just ease into expectations of having a phone and some of the rules of having a phone without it having games and social media and all those things that are really pulling them into it. Well, isn't that how we do it? Like, we don't just hand our kid a Harley Davidson when he's 12. Right. <laughs> we we slowly ease them into a bike and a bicycle, and then we get them going. It's, oh, we're crazy the way we do. Because the tech that we're giving them, it's incredible technology, and it's just probably too much for their developmental age. Yeah, the more I've read about um, children's brains and teenage brains, especially teenage boy brains, they're just not ready for it. And I had someone say, I have people say a lot, well, you know, they have to figure out how to use it. They have, you know, this is the world we live in. They have to figure out how to use it, but we have to teach them how to use it. Yeah, right. Um, I I like the example. If you tell your 12-year-old son, would you like to have this ice cream sundae for dinner? Or would you like to have this salad for dinner? It doesn't, it, that doesn't connect for them. You can tell them all the good things about a salad and why it's healthy for their body. And they're going to choose an ice cream sundae because they're 12. Right. So we have to be able to ease them into making these good decisions and do it when 
it's age appropriate and brain appropriate for them. That's great, great advice. So uh, start slowly, get get a flip phone or even just any older technology to begin on, um, yeah. and then then you say get it filtered up, get some restrictions on the phone. Yeah. So if you get a smartphone or when you get a smartphone for your child, before you even give it to them out of the package, you have to put a filter on that smartphone. It is, it is dangerous. It is more dangerous than anything I can think of for a teenager to have without a filter. Um, I have some filters that I love. I, we use the filter r it's wonderful. It monitors um, their, the time they spend on it because that's a concern of mine. And, you know, some of my kids will say, oh, my gosh, Mom, I'm not doing anything bad on my phone. The problem is you're not doing anything good either. Right. And so I like to have our um, pact sets a time limit for how long they can stay on their apps on their phone. And when that time is done, the time runs out, the apps turn off, they can't get back on. And it's really taught them some time management. I'm okay with free time. I'm okay with downtime in moderation, as long as other things are getting accomplished. Um, it allows me to, you know, have Safari and search engines turned off. There's really important things that happen on that filter that, and it has kind of stopped the fight around our house. Instead of saying, stop telling me to put my phone away or whatever Mm -hmm. we are saying, the app controls that for me and, and they start learning how to control themselves. So I know I want to play my phone from 8 to 9 when my homework's done and it's dark and there's nothing else going on. So I'm going to save that hour and make sure I have an hour from 8 to 9 so that I can play my phone. And then when I say, hey, get off your phone, they say, I saved my time today. And I say, okay, sounds good. You know, go ahead and spend your time on your phone for one hour. That's That's great. a reasonable amount of time. Um, If you don't purchase a filter, um, then you need to go into restrictions and set up restrictions. And if you don't know how, the um, Apple Store can help you or um, wherever you buy your phone can help you set in parental restrictions where you can turn search engines off, where you can have the phone, um, you can set explicit content so they can't search that, so they can't see it on music or movies or anything like that. So there's a lot of things you can do, and there's a lot of great resources out there to find what you can do to filter your phone. And a lot of these filters might cost money, but you make a great point that says if you can't afford the filter, you probably can't afford to have the phone and your child using the phone. You can't. It's it's a dangerous thing, so you've got to pay for the safety. And I think one of the important things that I wrote in the article, that it says, if you think your kid is the exception, your head is in the sand. Yeah. Even the very best tweens and teens need limits. And there's story after story of really, really amazing kids who are strong and great and smart that do really, really stupid things. So... So true. So true. Um, Great stuff. Again, we're speaking with Brooke Romney, who is a a writer, an author, a blogger. If you go to her website, brookromney.com, you can find uh, all of her work as well as just just very common sense but and safe, smart, deeply researched, uh, great parenting stuff. Today we're talking about 10 things I wish I would have done before getting my child a smartphone. Wait, slow down. Get a filter on it. What else do you recommend, Brooke? Um, I, re- I recommend blocking downloads. So a lot of kids are sneaky, and so they'll take their apps off their phone when they're at home because their parents are going to check their phone, but they'll download them when they're other places. So in order to make sure that doesn't happen, 
you mm. can block downloads and you can do that in an iPhone. Um, you can get an app that helps you do it with like a Samsung or another type of phone. So block downloads. That's a great um, idea. And the nice thing is, is uh, one of my friends has one where the child has to ask for permission uh, on the phone to get it to download something. And that way they can look into what they're downloading. So there's no surprises of those yucky apps that kids are using. Um, you can have a conversation. Okay, why do you want to get this? Is this appropriate for you? Let's look it up. Let's make sure it's fine. And then I'll let you download it onto your phone. Hmm. So blocking That's downloads great. is really important. And, and I guess what this always does too is it's not it's not even about control as a parent. Sometimes it's about the conversation. Just talk to me about what you're doing. Right, and just there's so many things that um, seem just fine to kids because they don't understand where it can lead, and that's normal. That's that's where their brain is at right now. And so, being able to have that conversation with them and showing them, okay, this could be dangerous because of this, or. I don't think this is safe. You know, I have I, one of my sons is dying for Snapchat and we have the same conversation about every three months as he wants to prove to me that he's mature enough to have Snapchat. And, and I get to remind him of why I don't think that's a great app for him, for anyone. And yeah. so instead of saying, you know, sometimes they'll say, you don't trust me. I said, no, I don't trust what happens on technology. It's not you that I don't trust. That's so. great. It's great. Now, by the way, you're not alone, Brooke. Those conversations are happening all of the time, except some of us just give up. All right, fine, do it. Whatever. I know, because it's a lot. And a lot of times it, it's hard to have your kids say, I'm getting left out, you know, or everything happens over this app and you don't let me have it. But I just feel like there are times when it's worth standing my ground. So Yeah. My um, interesting thing that happened with my son the other day, he is, uh, one of his friends did a did a, a paper on the waste how much time we waste on social media, and it blew him away that we're spending you know sixteen hours of our life or whatever or sixteen days no sixteen years of our life uh, sleeping and on social media and he so as a seventeen year old boy he and a bunch of his friends turned off all social media. Wow, that's awesome! And now they actually really text awesome. each other. It's totally <laughs> right. weird. No, they just right. they just text instead of getting on all of these other devices to do it. Um, but he he says it's the greatest thing. I don't have to worry about pictures everywhere I go. Now, it is really awesome, and it's fun to see kids taking responsibility for their own you know digital life. Yeah, isn't and that their own real life? Oh, that's one of those parenting moments where you're like, ah, oh, good. Now, go on your mission. <laughs> get, get out there. Um, so uh, another thing that I think is so important that you talk about is setting a phone schedule that, that give them some time uh, boundaries on these things. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those things that I wish we would have done before we brought the phone out of the box. I wish we would have had these conversations. And so having a schedule, just having a regular time that you don't have your phones. And I think it should include the whole family. So, you know, dinner time or at school. One of the things I love about the RPAC software on his phone is I can turn all of his apps off at school, but I can leave on the things that he needs, you know, yeah. like his school stuff. So that's been kind of nice. And so having a schedule, but when they're home, hey, you know, we're not going to do phones for the hour after you get home from school. I want you to get your homework done or we're not going to do them during mail time. Um, Phones get turned in at 930 because it's bedtime and we need to be finished with our phones. Whatever works for your family, having a realistic phone schedule so that there's times when they don't have their phone, when they don't need to be on their phone, and when they know that it's going to be put away. And some families do that by putting them in a basket. Some have them plugged in 
you know, in a different room, whatever it yeah. is, find something that works for your family that helps everybody have time away from technology. Yeah. No, and I love that idea. Um, and it goes with one of your next points is about knowing the codes. You know the access codes to their phones. So when we put the phones away at night, that gives you, a, as a parent, time with their codes to go evaluate what they're doing, look at their phone, and, I mean, do it with them knowing that that's what you're yeah, going to do. Yeah. But but it gives you oversight. Right. And and just a little chance to catch up and see if there's anything to be concerned about. And, you know, don't be surprised if, as a parent, there is something to be concerned about. You know, this is a time of growth and learning and testing boundaries. And so you don't have to freak out if there's something that doesn't jive with your rules or your values but take an opportunity to go chat with them about what's going on and, and why it's bothersome to you and, and some of the changes you think should be made. Yeah. And, um, you know, if they know you're going to check their phone at night, some kids are pretty smart and they'll just erase everything that's happened during the day. And so um, I like to just grab their phone every once in a while, you know, maybe while you're waiting for somebody to come out of a lesson, say like, hey, let me see your phone for a minute and, you know, just yeah. pop in. Pop in every once in a while and see how things are going. Well, I mean, and we all are better, you know, when we have the occasional cop pull up next to us. <laughs> it's true. And it's when true. you don't know when it's coming, you just tend to always have that in the back of your mind that people are watching. Yep. It's good. Yep. And, it's, and it's good. It's good. It's a good reminder for them. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, another thing you talk about is just the the serious conversations about the impact of this stuff, but don't just have those conversations once. You need to have those conversations over and over and over again. Yeah. um, Kids have short-term memory loss sometimes, especially when it comes to social media and things like that. And so pretty much every time I see a story in the news or I like to make sure that they hear about it, if if there has been something inappropriate that's been done over a phone. And just make sure that they remember these things last forever. You know, even even something you say over text that sounds mean, you know, somebody can screenshot that. They can show it to their mom. They can show it to their friends. They can, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen. And so they need to be really, really careful about what they put out there. And I think our world, it's funny because there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. But back when we were growing up, you didn't get caught for everything, right. you know, like there was no camera to video it and there was no screenshot. And so they need to understand that even if you just say something in joking and it sounds funny to you in your mind, putting that on a text or putting that in social media, that can live forever and be a really big problem for you later. So reminding them over and over again, you know, same thing about bullying, even, you know, violent threats. Sometimes boys say stupid stuff and, it can be really, con- it can be misconstrued into being a real threat to somebody or, you know, they just need to be really smart about what they say and do, even if it's, even if they're joking, even yeah. if it's sarcastic. No, so. That's so true. I mean, there was a football player that just got in trouble for joking about, hey, did you pack your bomb? And he would, he'd said the joke while he was going through TSA and it didn't turn out so great for him. So um, yeah, there, there's consequences. And the, the neat thing about the phone is it's, it is something that you that you have a lot of power over your child because you have access to this phone with them. Um, but it's the perfect, I think, pivot point to pivot on a lot of life's lessons because they're it using is. it for it, life. They do. And and it's how, it's how they're going to see a lot of their world, whether we like it or not. And so 
we can we can teach a lot of lessons through these through these phones and you know and sometimes making dumb decisions you know you can help them figure out how they could have done it better in the future so yeah uh you do talk about starting social media slowly and setting up consequences for for use or misuse if they do something wrong we need to have a consequence for it um, and then the last rule that you talk about is the rule of just take a break. We need to have set breaks for all of us to get off of the tech. Um, overall, Brooke, how how has how would you see that this would change the lives of uh, maybe a new mom that's that, who's got a twelve year old begging for a phone? How how did this make a difference to you, or how do you think it would make a difference to her? I just I love the way that things have changed in our home because there's so much less contention. I feel like when you set up expectations for your kids from the beginning, there's so much less contention in the way that you use technology or whatever you're using in your home, but letting them know what your expectations are and letting them know what the consequences are when they don't meet those instead of fighting about things or, you know, I just remember one of, one of my friends said, I just feel like the only conversation I have with my kid is about putting their phone down. Hmm. And having, I, I want to have better conversations than that with my kids. I want to do more than just police them about their phones. And so starting it this way allows you to be a parent, to be a friend, to do all kinds of great things with your kid. And then the phone is in the background instead of in the foreground all the time. And, you know, there's real great things about being able to keep your kids safe online and being able to minimize some of the consequences they might have, you know, personally or spiritually or emotionally, if things go wrong in one way and um, being able to really be able to help them use these as tools for their use instead of allowing them to control your children or to control your home or even to control you. Absolutely. Brooke, it's good stuff. As always, Brooke Romney is her name. Go check out her website, brookromney.com, brookromney.com, where you can get the latest and greatest uh, just from all parts of life, all of her different areas that she focuses on um, on her blog. Uh, Wonderful writer. And boy, a lot to do and a lot to dissect. Get the article as well, the 10 things I wish I would have done before getting my child a smartphone, because you could take each one of those and slowly just break it down into the kind of the ideal format to, to open up new technology in your family and with your family. We'll continue the journey to a little uh, empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Well, as if uh, getting technology for your child wasn't difficult enough, how about a man arrested for throwing a hot burrito at his sister? Now we need rules for burritos. Wyoming police on Saturday arrested a 20-year-old man who allegedly threw a hot burrito at his young sister, resulting in a burn on her left arm. Gage L. Fisher was booked into jail on a recommended charge of assault, uh, assault with a Burrito. A hot burrito. Yeah. A uh, police officer responded to the call. The mother of both Fisher and the victim told the officer that the two had gotten into an argument about a cup, with Fisher believing that his sister, younger sister had taken the cup from which he had been drinking. Hmm. Who knows what they were drinking, but apparently yeah. hot burritos started flying. <laughs> the story doesn't go into that. Uh, How old is this guy? 20. 
20, uh, fighting with his younger sister. Then Fisher then threw the hot burrito, which uh, had just been removed from the microwave, at his sister. The burrito hit her in the arm. And you all know what that I mean, those things. Oh, they're hot. They're like hot tamales. you got to let them sit or you're going to burn your mouth. It takes a while, yeah. And uh, the officer photographed the girl's left arm and saw a red mark consistent with something hot, like a burrito striking her. Mm. She had burrito marks. You see, he's assuming too much there. Does that cop have experience in burrito wounds? Well, well they train for that. No, a Do lot they? of forensic offices. There's a lot that's of standard curriculum. burrito forensics. Ever since Seven uh, Eleven started offering the hot burrito. Now, if the burrito was smothered, would it be a more severe yes. breakage of I think law? that's a first-degree felony. Okay, there you go. The, the smothered. Smo- yeah, the throwing of a hot right. smothered there'd burrito. there'd be like hot cheese or some mm-hmm. sort of sauce. And, yeah. yeah. It's... More to think about there. <laughs> oh, there's a lot. Probably more than anyone would ever want to. Um, so food is a problem, folks. Uh, a man also attacks a Golden Arches at McDonald's, uh, the Golden Arches at McDonald's. A 37-year-old uh, man, police say, tried to destroy the Golden Arches. Hmm. I mean, the iconic arches. They're just out front. What is going on with this world? Uh, after the workers refused to make him 30 double cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> 30 burgers? Uh, no. He's one of those competitive eaters, probably. Police arrested Jedediah Ezekiel Fulton on March 16th on suspicion of second-degree disorderly conduct. Jedediah Ezekiel? Mm-hmm. Wow. J.E., they call him. Yeah, I guess. Uh, a second-degree criminal trespass, second-degree criminal mischief and harassment. Authorities say Fulton became upset with the fast food restaurant. Declined to make. Uh, they declined to make his order. He just wanted 30 double just cheeseburgers. 30 burgers now, please. But then he threat he he upped the ante when he said he's going to attack the arches. Oh, right. Then it got even more dangerous. He's like, "Don't make me pull a hot burrito on you." I got a hot burrito, right? So, I just love that that was the threat. That wasn't crazy? even like any personal thing. If, I'm going to take care of the arches. If your name was Jedediah Ezekiel, would you want to be known as Jed or Zeke? I'd be I'd be called Easy. Easy? Yeah. All I right. think that's a cool name. Easy. I think Zeke could be kind of an uh, interesting name to Zeke's go by. Zeke's kind of an older... Yeah? Huh. Yeah. Zeke's, kind of throwback a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's got a little hillbilly in it. All right. <laughs> I like Easy. Easy sounds like he's just hip and cool. All right. What would you do with... What's he wanting 20... 30. 30 double cheeseburgers. Maybe they were on sale and you, you put them in the freezer and you have lunch every day. Why wouldn't you make them if he's going to pay? Maybe you're Maybe lazy they, and you just don't want to do it. Oh, come on, man. It's almost time to close. 30 at one time. Don't make me get the – I'll get the golden arches. Wow, what's Sometimes happening? places won't do orders like that because they're not sure if you'll pay. Well, just make them pay before we start. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. There's we solutions to, to all this. And then it's like call ahead and they'll do it. But yeah. at the moment, it's probably maybe like lunch hour or something. Well, and it, it, yeah, they might busy. be like, we'd have to – they're frozen. We'd yeah. have to free unfreeze those patties. They don't do that anymore. Not not there. Yeah, I'm talking to other restaurants. Well, they, they might still do it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they're going with the unfrozen or just more fresh. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> well, ask Wendy's. So uh, be careful, folks. Burritos will get you, as will, uh, you know, the orders that people don't want to fill. Come on! You're here for a job. We'll continue the journey. In fact, we'll be visiting two of our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation straight ahead. It's time, folks, to now head down to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their show. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Gavna. Hello. Hello, Gavna. 
Hi. How are Cheerio. you guys? Hey, uh, I'm so great. I'm great. Sorry. That's, that's good. Um, here's the question for you. I got a question. Yes. Okay, Rookie of the Year. We've been having a little discussion down here because uh-huh. apparently Ben Donovan Simmons— Donovan Mitchell, but go ahead. It's totally Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell. But Ben Simmons, who's really in his second year, is mm-hmm. trying to argue that he should be the Rookie of the Year. What's your take? Look, I'm a jazz fan. I'm going to be 100% biased on this. I, I, <laughs> on, asking me this question is just—it's pointless because it's going to be Donovan to me. It's he. We see him every day. Yes. So I, I, I get what he's done. I do not think that Ben Simmons means as much to the 76ers as Donovan means to the Jazz. Totally. And so, I mean, like, again, I'm the wrong person to ask. You're biased. Yes. But, I mean, Ben Simmons is going to win the award. Is he's he? He's going to. ESPN did a poll, I think it was yesterday, and, like, it was one of those things like 80% said it was Ben Simmons. Really? Yeah, like he like Donovan's not winning this unfortunately, but he absolutely should. What a crock. <laughs> yeah, th- there'll be some East Coast bias on this one. That's for show. For show. But both okay. had tremendous seasons. The feud between them is a pretty interesting yeah. one. Last night Donovan Mitchell wearing a Yeah, that was rookie awesome. definition sweatshirt and Ben Simmons <laughs> Two days ago, when asked which other rookies have impressed him, said none. Oh wow! So that, it seems like it's good natured. Yeah. <clears throat> if it's not, I don't care what level of nature it has. A good feud's a good feud. In fact, if it's not good natured, it's actually better. It's just natured, then. It's just natured. I'm whelmed by this. <laughs> and I mean, but, and, and we're going to talk about yes. some of the best feuds in BYU sports based on that. Yeah, oh, we are. Cool. The, the good thing about this is it's bringing that old rivalry between Salt Lake and Philly that we've talked so much about over the years. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, hold on, hold on. And they were laying down the tracks in the 1800s. It's I mean, like, they're oh, like... tracks are better at commentary point than by the Liberty Bell. Oh, wow. I did not. I, I forgot that Rich rivalry. history. Yeah. Like, and then people Track out here warfare. were like, Ben Franklin, he was a loser. <laughs> See, that's what I love about your show is we always also do a, a big historical review. We like to teach. That's what our number one goal is. <laughs> that's why you come from BYU. <laughs> You're teachers at heart. Okay, here, here's another question for you. So we just did a story about a man that was arrested for throwing a hot burrito mm. at his sister. Okay. And, uh, Is that they, like spilling and, coffee? And uh, they got in a fight because McDonald's? he thinks she had taken his cup and he got mad at her because he was drinking from a cup and she apparently he thought took the cup. So then he got mad and threw his hot burrito. And this is just sibling stuff, right? So I want to know what's the hottest thing you've ever thrown at your sibling? Or oh. what's the biggest sibling rivalry fight you have ever had that you'd want to talk about on the air? That right there. Where that did we last cross part, a line? That last part may be the uh, yeah. You don't want to share. It's constantly you don't share. going through my mind. Highly trained professionals <laughs> that don't want to share. Come on, There's, I can't think I of. I don't. I, I didn't have a big feud with my two younger sisters. I did, don't remember throwing anything. Did they ever play a trick on you that just you know maybe that went too far? No. Wow. Not really. Yeah, I, honestly, nothing's really coming to mind. I, I, Boy, I feel you guys. bad that we don't have anything for you. On yeah, that. that's kind of right. sad because when you know Jeff always had a lot of sibling stories. Yeah, so yeah, well, we apologize for having strong relationships with our family. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure you guys. I mean, I thought this. I thought there yeah, would have been a train wreck. Yeah, we just something. have amazing relationships. It's just harmonious. I don't know. Wow, something's sure. weird. <laughs> Either that or you're really holding back. Or maybe court-ordered. I was going to say, uh, statute of limitations yeah. has not run out. Um, we cannot. 
I once Cur- there's currently a court case. I'm put in abeyance. Yeah. We cannot talk about it. Until. I once flipped <laughs> my sister. I had just gone to scouts and learned some judo moves, and my sister was bugging me, and I flipped her right in front of my her boyfriend, knocked the air right out of her. That's what's up. That was, and then then I had to run. And I didn't dare go home for about five hours. Yeah, that's embarrassing. You know how that goes. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right. So you guys are going to do your show uh, now um, and talk, I'm sure, about family, you know. Family dynamics. Family dynamics. Family yes. ties. Anything else yes. on your show that we should know about coming up? There's all kinds of stuff, man. Nick Emery, uh, former but hopeful future Cougar, uh, tweeted his intentions regarding uh, BYU basketball. Are mm. they to stay or go? Yeah. Uh, Head coach Dave Rose last night at the BYU basketball banquet said he's happy with the season, but he wants more, and that's the number one goal. We will uh, discuss that as well. It wasn't more on his plate at the banquet either. Plus, how many (laughs) good quarterbacks is too many for BYU in the race for starter? And why is the phrase stay woke in the team room? Stay woke? Yeah, what, if, yeah. if I ask you, what's stay woke? What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, what, do you, what does that mean? It means somebody has a grammar problem. Stay Beyond de- that. Oh, uh, stay woke. Uh, be awake. Be alert. Yes. yes. Be focused. Yes. Are you? Did you just Google that? No. That's just. Because that's almost verbatim what it actually is. Is it really? That's just me. That's just me channeling the that's inner you BYU. That's you just dropping some knowledge. Mm-hmm. Every day, 24-7. <laughs> So that's a great show, guys. Uh, and, and anything on a hot burrito or anything like that? No. Uh, no hot burritos. Um, no but that does sound pretty good, though. I but brought lunch, but a burrito sounds better. Stay woke. Yes, indeed. Okay, guys, knock them dead. Thank have you. A, have a great show, as I know you will. Of course you will. Stay woke. Hey, by the way, I noticed a really interesting um, little discovery. Uh, apparently, one of the... What are they called? Airliners um, is now offering sleeping berths where you can go down below um, and sleep underneath the uh, the main cabin. So you have to pay a little bit more, obviously, but they're just full on sleeping. I guess they're called berths. On um, took on, me a minute to realize that was spelled with an I e. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably pronounced it weird. Uh, on airlines, and I'm trying to pull it up because for some reason I just lost my entire, all my everything. Anyway, but uh, an airline, but you pay more money. So, would you want to sleep down underneath in the cargo area? But it's nice. They're nice little beds, and you're in your own little like cargo area. <laughs> And you, so you don't have like luggage flying all over. But would you would you be okay going down there to sleep? I guess it depends how long the flight is. Yeah, but like if you're going to cross the Atlantic or whatever, oh, I'd do that. Yeah, in a second. that sounds pretty cool. Then you just go get in your little incubator. But Plus some it's are probably like, quiet. I, I don't want to die in the cargo hold. If you I know mean, what? If the plane's going down. I don't know if you really. You may end up in the cargo hold anyway. <laughs> yeah. Not to be graphic. Anyway, let's get to our hero story. Uh, as you know, uh, we like to focus on the heroes, and a group of children managed to escape with the help of a good Samaritan and the police when fire ripped through their dance studio in New Jersey. The fire broke out inside a complex Monday evening and spread into the studio where six girls were rehearsing. The children were trapped inside the burning building until the good Samaritan and police officers were able to break through the front window. We didn't have that much time. By the time we got them out, the fire department had put the ladder down, and uh, then the fire was everywhere. So, boy. And within seconds, they went in and saved these kids. So, they are the heroes of the day. Ah, 
sometimes you don't know when you're going to have to step up and just be there for people. And I think we all uh, would be willing to do it. Let's just, uh, instead of risking our lives, let's just risk some more time, some more attention, and some more positivity with each other. That might go even longer and even farther. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is up next.